I hereby inform you under powers entrusted to me under section 47, paragraph 7 of Council Order number 438476 that Mr. Buttle, <laughs> residing at 412 North Tower, Shangri-La Towers, has been invited to assist the Ministry of Information with certain inquiries and that he is liable to certain financial obligations as specified in Council Order RB stroke CZ stroke 907 stroke X. Sign here, please. <laughs> Thank you. Same again, please. Just there. Press harder this time. Good. Oh, but this is all about. That is your receipt for your husband. Thank you. And this is my receipt for your receipt. Pivotal film. I am Tom Nolan, and I'm Mario Ponzio, and we are a week away from Christmas here in Pivotal Film Studio Land. Yeah, and I guess everywhere land. It's stressing well, I mean, me out. You got five days from the release date of, of everywhere. You know, how you feeling about Christmas? Four days from the release date of this episode, right? Yeah, it's the nineteenth. Today's the nineteenth, and then the twentieth, and then the twenty-first. Christmas the 25th. Right. I'm counting Saturday as a day. No, yeah, Saturday's not a day. Um, I feel terrible about it. I do not like this season for all of its very commercial, like, you know. I like making cookies. Yeah. I got some I like cookies. cookies. I got some cookies chilling right now. Yeah. We're going to enjoy later. It's going to be an exciting episode. <laughs> Just not, for the, not, for, not for the listeners, but for us. No, but for us. As we eat cookies. With our cookies and our, and our stouts. Yeah. Speaking of. Uh, we are now at the second to last stouts um, of the year of the stout kind of journey in December. Speaking of which, uh, this being episode 36, we're going to take a, a long break now from our list after this episode. Yeah, I think, uh, what is it, five through. weeks? So we got, so up in the next, to give a timeline <laughs> of what's coming up, in the next two weeks we have our top 20 films of the decade, of the past Centuries 20 over. years. Yeah. Centigrade? Century? Is that what you call it? I don't know. One fifth of a century? Of the century. Decacent. So far. Decacentry? No, that'd be. These aren't real terms, are they? No. <laughs> Top 20 of the past 20 years. Yep. Uh, so we're going to do 20 plus whatever. I don't, know if, I don't know if you have honorable mentions. I don't. I'm not going to do I don't that. have any honorable I mean, none that are worth mentioning. I suppose might, I have. We like might have a big talk of like, oh, things we didn't make our list, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah. But, um, so we'll do 20 through 11 next Saturday. And then the Saturday following, we'll finish it up with 10 through 1. Um, and that will bring us to the new year. That good old new year. And the new year will bring us the Academy Award nominations. Which so, everyone is really looking forward to. <clears throat> yeah, because they're all looking forward to the... Oh, I forgot what article I was reading. I have an idea. So that the bloodbath that will be the staff. That was New York Times, yeah. New York Times. Uh, but on the, I believe the 11th, we're going to be doing our... Were you talking about this? We're going to do our our best of the year on the eleventh. No, because we're oh, we won't be recording because that's yeah because because we're um, not actually going to be recording. Seventeen doesn't come yeah. out until the day before. So what are we doing on the eleventh? Have we figured nothing? That out? That's what was a conversation we had via text the other day. Oh right. So, so we might take a break for a week. 
Um, and then on the 18th, uh, we'll have probably two episodes that week of Oscar nominations and catch up on films. Um, I think. I don't and know. And then we'll have our probably, probably, probably do the best of the year that year. I feel like we need to talk about this more. Yeah. <laughs> Just know that if you care about the list, come yeah. back in late You're January. You're missing a long time. Um, yeah, I mean, this. Around January 25th. I'm going to be very honest with you. This 1917 <clears throat> coming out on January 10th thing is fucking stupid. Uh, just like what the is portrait, that? Why? portrait of a lady on fire coming no, out. No, it's a, it's a totally different. It's, <laughs> it's the a same totally thing. different thing. If uh, I don't know my interest level in like I know, I know, I know, is like I know. middle of the ground. Like, sure, I'm excited for it, but portrait of a lady on fire. How long have I been talking about? I'm just talking, portrait of a lady on fire. You have. I'm just talking about culturally. If we learned anything from two years ago, it's that you can release one of these movies in the middle of the summer and it can make a ton of money. And they could have. They could have released it. Exactly. I'm, the only thing I can think of is that it's not done. Well, it yeah, just so got like, done or I think, something. I think like Sam Mendes thought of this like last October. I was like, I want to make one of those. Yeah. But like... Roger Deakins was like, I like winning Oscars. <laughs> Give me another one. Um, but it just... it's. I don't know. It's turned... It's being released in dumping ground season. Yeah, I don't understand why like... They didn't just challenge Little Women and Uncut Gems. Because Uncut Gems is releasing wide on Wednesday. They must think that it's going to be Little big. Women. And Little Women's going to be fucking huge. Do we think so? Yeah. It's going to be big. It's going to be like Wonder Saoirse Woman. Saoirse Ronan, uh, it's gonna be box like Wonder... office draw now? I think, um, I think for a certain... It's not going to be Wonder Woman big. It's not going to be Wonder Woman big. I'd say it's going to make maybe 30 I'm not talking million. about money. I'm talking about how people go see it. Uh, so you're like going to get like a long big Hollywood. groups of people. Even my wife it's already gonna, said... It's going to hold well. Yeah, my wife already said she wants to take like my her daughter to see our daughter to see it, and I was like, I was like, wait, what? When she said it, <laughs> is this news? My other there? daughter. When she <laughs> said it, um, I was just like, there are women everywhere who just saw that commercial that literally said the same thing to their spouses. Like, if your daughters are of a certain age, they're all taking them to see Little I mean, Women. It's PG, so like, you can exactly, see it. and it's got amazing cast minus Meryl Streep. So you know, more Laura Dern's never a bad thing. More Tracy Letts is 100% not a bad thing. They should get some scenes together. Speaking of hopefully not a bad thing, <laughs> we get back to the conversation about stouts yep. that we kind of dropped off there. Um, this week, we are continuing staying in the state, going over to Oxford, Connecticut, and Black Hog, whose track record has been up and down. We like their we granola good, brown. Yep. Some, I think we've had something else from them. I don't know. IPAs or whatnot. It's hard to keep track of good. at this point. Uh, this is their Imperial Stout. It's called Leaves a Mark. It's got a lot of chocolate. It's supposed to have a lot of chocolate oh, notes. Exploded. It you left know why a mark called, on my paper. You know why it's called Leave a Mark, Tom? Because the last couple beers we've had have been 9.5%. Some have been 10. We had an 11. The toasted sweater was an 11. Oh, that was a, that was a nice chocolate 12. Chocolate sweater. It was 11%, right? 11.3, yeah. Nice little 12-ounce can. Enjoy this 11.5% 16-ounce can beer. This better be good. Mm. I mean, it's smooth-ish. It's not got a high flavor profile, nor a really distinct mouthfeel for something that's so, by its ABV, Potentially verbose. It doesn't... It tastes more like a milk stout. It doesn't feel heavy. No. But it tastes, like, too heavy. Does it? Not, like, in flavor, but just in, like, alcohol. Oh. You know what I mean? You know why I probably don't taste that? Because I just finished a bourbon. <laughs> the bourbon probably 
probably is making me think like this is an alcoholic tasting at all. I'm going to tell you very honestly, this tastes like a really high ABV brown. Mm-hmm. Because mm. it's missing, it's missing all of the stout flavors that you that you look for. You know what I mean? And it's just it's just earthy and dark. Yeah, it tastes like a. You get, it's really toasty. It's got like a lot of toasted oats. But yeah, it's stuff. really toasted. But I don't know what has been toasted. You know, it tastes like um like what was that the Samuel Smiths like those kind of like English strong style browns, like you know those beers you you think you would get like in a dingy bar in like mm. like Liverpool. Yeah, like pub, like a like a pub beer. Like you're wearing your Man City jersey that you just walk Arsenal in and say jersey. I'll have a I'll have a or I'll have a Manchester City jersey <laughs> or Chelsea jersey or. Are you, trying to, United are you trying to gain points with a segment of our fan base now? Or Liverpool. Real Madrid. I know they're not a part of the Premier League, but I've run out of... This got a one ta- of Tottenham? Is that one? Tottenham, yeah. Tottenham yeah. is one. Look at that. Woo! Look at that. We did it. Thank you, UK fans. We got, um, all, we got all our but points. But yeah, no, it just tastes like, it tastes like something you want to get fucked up on when you know... What one of your your preferred soccer football player? Uh, <laughs> I wonder is, if this will taste good with the cookies. I bet this could use a cookie. What can't use a cookie? It's true. I'm going to pour this in a milk glass. Yeah, I need to dip my cookie in it. We also have coffee from Colombia coming up. Too, Ooh, so. you are very fancy today. I don't know if we're going to talk about that. Maybe we'll talk about that on the podcast. <laughs> we'll review the we'll review the coffee. We'll that's, when we'll, food. that's when the liable suit will come. Well, you know review what? The coffee. You know what this podcast really is about, Tom. Yes. It's about the list. Pivotal films. Right? Yeah. And in our 64-ish or so episodes leading up, I can't – 100 minus 36 would be 64, but I don't know if it's actually 65 because we're counting 100. No, it would be 64, right? 64 list episodes I believe we've had. It's not a math podcast. Yeah. I just – do we count? Yeah, no, it has to be 64. 64 (laughs) episodes we've had. We've had a very distinct – delineation of how we do this podcast we begin with some beer discussions and we did that today yep and followed up with some new reviews then we go into our lists mm-hmm. we go back and forth me and you how about we askew all that why would we askew all that today mario well it's the christmas season oh it's christmas and it's the season of giving and receiving season of sharing Perhaps yeah. that's that's better than what I said. We share beers. We're going to share cookies and potentially, for the one and only time, we share films in the same exact spot. Coming in at Mario's number 36. And Tom's number 36. Is the 1985 Terry Gilliam film, Brazil. Do you wake from your finest fantasy? Only to return to your daily nightmare. Is your mother about to look younger than you do? Does the woman of your dreams... I love you. 
in my dreams. I love you. Still have a few doubts. Then it's time to take a stand. To break out of your dull, humdrum life and into Brazil. You're so pleased. You can make it right this way. It's about whites of fantasy and the nightmare of reality. Um, yeah, I mean, this is one of those things we didn't plan it. We just wrote our list together and then we were comparing them one day and we were just went like, I was I had my list out and you were telling me what was on your list because for some reason, like, you won't give me a copy of your list because your list exists in only one almost cloth-like piece of paper now. I don't know. It's, look at that. It's pretty sturdy. It's, it's so wrinkled. Actually, it's very dry. Yeah. It's, it's like it's biblical paper or something. Um, and... And, oh and my! It's actually if you hold it up to a light, you can see holes now. It's and it in. used to be yellow, and now it's white. Well, it's still it's still yellowish. Yellowish. Um, and it just happened. It happened, Mario. And I actually think this is a perfect well, movie. Well, no, for I, it remember, to I remember with. what happened was we were kind of reviewing it, and I was kind of sitting there, and I, I was looking at the list, and we were kind of discussing it just at our side street talks mm. when you get those twenty wings for ten dollars. Great deal. In the we fifth gotta, bowl of popcorn. We gotta get back there sometime. Now it's now it's Christmas break. Those fucks at Quinnipiac are gone. Yeah. We're going to make a sojourn. The 19-year-olds at Quinnipiac. They um, go the street. Yeah, the 25-year-olds 20, can stay. Um, I, I was kind of looking at my list before we shared it. I, I just randomly switched out my number, my earlier number 36 with my with 35. Because I was like, meh. One film got me more into kind of like the thought of film. And this one kind of just is more like an aesthetically pleasing kind of warming film for me mm. uh brazil is and then we just started sharing and i was like well that's weird yeah it's like it was it was pure serendipity yeah absolutely almost. absolutely um which is why this is on my list it's because it's our friendship yeah <laughs> this, is, this is why we're friends um yeah we just met one day started talking about brazil and then you know we know we have a podcast together um i don't know if this if serendipity and brazil go together mario do they <coughs> do they go together i you know a what? little bit, maybe for the reason that it's on my list. Yeah, okay. I would say, yeah. I would say for me, it being a a perfect milestorm of ideas and like things coming to coalescing at a certain point in my life, it is serendipitous. To mm, me. Mm, interesting. Should but, we start with a? In, should we start now with a? Let's, let's, let's describe the movie. Describe let's, the, let's, this is yeah. Sam Lowry, played by the movie that made. He, this is the movie that made this guy iconic. As far as I'm concerned, Jonathan Price, who we'll talk about, you know, next week or whenever we talk about the two popes, um, he's come well, a long way from. We'll be talking about it on Bra- Sunday. It's Brazil Thursday right now. We're um, doubling up because Tom has kids. Kids. Um, he works for um, the state in an in an information capacity. We'd call it like the organization. The organization, yeah, we could do that, but it's. More than the, and this is where the, this is where some of like the reviews of the movie become conflicted because by calling <coughs> it the organization and not like directly aligning it to like a state-run enterprise or vice versa, it it brings up a lot of um, relatable ideas to other works which really have no bearing on on what this movie is doing. Doesn't matter. Um, he likes his job because it's easy. And he can spend all of his time daydreaming. And his 
His job, unfortunately, for, well, we would think so, the viewer would think so, would be a hard one to daydream at, but like an easy one to understand why you would want to daydream at it. Because his job consists of, and it seems like everyone's job consists of moving papers around in a never-ending stream of tubes and ducts and filing cabinets and, you know, computers that are really typewriters with magnifying glass screens and all this other crazy stuff. You know, it's Terry Gilliam movie. I don't know if you mentioned that, that it was <laughs> Terry Gilliam movie, but it's Terry Gilliam movie. They only look like one thing. So he's at, and everything's gray, but he's at this job and he's daydreaming. And what is he daydreaming about? He's daydreaming about himself flying through the sky in armor and wings, and he has a sword, and there's a beautiful woman in all of his daydreams she's got long blonde hair and she's always trapped and he's got to save her and this woman exists in real life and her name is jill and she's played by kim greased and she lives above the buttles who have missed their their mr buttle has mistakenly been taken from his home for why don't because he's aligned with a terrorist organization or whatever. Um, and he sees her. He sees her around the city. And he's, and he, and he's got to know her. And he, and he eventually transfers to information retrieval, which is a better position, so he can actually find out who this woman is and where she lives so he can go be a part of her life. Um, there are within this movie a million different ins and outs that have very little to do with the plot, but also kind of have everything to do with the plot. Um, I mean, I think, you know, most notably his mother, played by Catherine Helmond, Ida Lowry, um, is constantly getting plastic surgery done to her. And so is her friend. And one of them is using acid and one of them is using knives. And Catherine Hellman She died? Who? Catherine Hellman finally died this year? She did die this year? Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, I love Catherine Hellman. It was weird reading about this movie. I like Soap and Who's the Boss. Who's the Boss is great. I don't know. Who doesn't like Who's the Boss? Who Maybe Tony Danza? Who doesn't like Judith Light? That's, you know. Because she's been able to move on with her life. Who's like who? Oh, I was... See, when I watched it, I was, I was on the Alyssa Milano train. Oh, okay. So. I stayed on that train. <laughs> Still on that train. Um, when you read about this movie, it, like, Terry Gilliam sought her out. Like, he wanted, you know... Um, Catherine Hellman to play this role, which I think is I think is great. It's I love reading about different eras of film. Well, she's, like, play, she's almost playing like a um, a magnified version of her character from Soap. Yeah, but it's great. I mean, yeah. she's no, just fucking great in this movie. Um, Sam's boss is played by Ian Holm. I mean, there's like a lot of there's a lot of people in this movie. Robert De Niro, who wanted to play Michael Palin's character Jack Lint, ends up playing the. HVAC terrorist Archibald Harry Tuttle, who's always um, ziplining in and out of precarious situations to do HVAC work or to, to point a gun at somebody or to save somebody's life. Um, Bob Hoskins See, and that's, is yeah. in the thankless, <laughs> the thankless but hilarious role as the actual... I fucking love Hoskins in this movie. Oh, it's like, great. Hoskins and Price... Um, and, and Heldon are kind of like the three rules I look at. But like my entry point to this film is, is Hoskins. Is it? And yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll get to it when I explain like why this is a pivotal film for me. But like 
Listen, Hoskins was always on fire. Fuck you, Parkinson's. Hmm. Yeah. Fuck you, Parkinson's. We should, we should call this episode Fuck You, Parkinson's. Um, Sam gets caught up in the nature of what the society is currently like. And he needs to break it so that he and this woman can be together. Essentially. Because it's a Terry Gilliam film, it gets progressively weirder and more awesome as the movie goes on. Um, it spirals. I mean, the ending is like a, a fucking spiral of surrealism. When love conquers all. When love conquers all, yeah. Um, it does. We all end up in the backs of houses on the backs of trucks. Yeah. Um, hopefully. Ideally. You know what I mean? That's where we all. That's where we want to be. Um, living in a in a in that house in the woods. Why? I suppose we can go. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Talking about like what the, where we got, how we got to Brazil. How did we get to Brazil, Mario? Ah. Uh, for me, let me start. I guess. For me, Brazil is here because it's a weird glue mm. in a portion of my life. Explain that. Um, I love it. Let's look at two films that have popped up on my list already that have direct correlations that one, you know, greatly precedes Brazil in terms of its aesthetic and one, you know, <clears throat> is, is his, this man's filmography is kind of inspired by the, the production design, the mise-en-scene and everything, uh-huh. the visual scope that Terry Gilliam presented, especially in Brazil, Metropolis. Mm. You know, my hour-long discussion on Metropolis, um, going back to episode 90. Wow, that was a long time ago. Yeah. It's only been a year, though. Really, I know. A little over a year. We're only doing this podcast for less than a year and a half. Every time we sit down to do this podcast, I'm amazed we're still doing this podcast. I think other people would have quit by now. <laughs> Why not? Fuck it. I know. It's just... We're smarter than Oh, people. I think it's great. It's like my, one of my favorite things I've ever done in my life. like, we don't have enough listeners. And I'm like, fuck it. Who cares? Well, you know what's weird about this podcast, and I don't want to digress too much, is that like it's kind of taken over my life a little bit, where like I work, and I have a family, and I do this. So when like I go to parties or something, and I talk to somebody, be like, oh, on the podcast, we were talking about this, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, I was, and people are just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right, continue. Um, so Metropolis, like like a lot of the aesthetics of Metropolis and what Lang is doing there, um, and even even to an extent, like even going like to M and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, a movie that's going to show up way later on my list. Um, also, like I'll start Orson Welles to, to give you a little hint. Um, like the aesthetic of that really kind of is a hallmark to to what this film creates. And then going to my number 65, Delicatessen. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about that on every the episode. Jean-Pierre Jeune film, you know, um, not, God, what the hell is it? Um, Children of the Lost... City of Lost Children. City of Lost Children. Um, not, not, not a big fan of it. Has no, but it by... pulls from yeah. Brazil um, liberally. And... You know, movies I'm going to talk about later uh, from a certain director and an, another director I love, Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of that aesthetic 
comes from it's it's filtered through this it's you know you get you kind of get german impressionism you get some of those those crazy lines and you know german impressionism is a big part of the world for me we <laughs> talked about how much i love film noir we're gonna talk about like the core of german impressionism in about you know 20 or so weeks <laughs> um and it's filtered like brazil works to me has kind of this crazy filter and this crazy glue and this is a time where i was reading like kafka i oh was yeah still yeah. obsessed with 1984 even though i think 1984 was the most like generalized simple way of accessing this movie we could talk about that later uh, but I think it's a good I access wanna, point. It's right, a good yeah, yeah, access yeah. point. But it's just the comparisons. Um, like, all the reviewers that want to be like, well, it's his version of 1984. Look, and it's like, well, no, it's, it's kind of I feel like it's more like The Trial. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Or like the Double. Yes. I mean, there's a reason why Richard Aote, when he does when he does his version of The Double, mm-hmm. borrows so heavily from the aesthetic of Brazil. You know, like, this is more Kafka-esque than it is like, yeah. an Orwellian. Um, but, like, Orwellian... Like to, to look at the Orwell line is perfectly fine as an entry point. It's an Orwell. It's Orwell from a, a, <laughs> like a political standpoint and yeah. from like a general cultural standpoint, where like the state is and, essentially and monitoring the entire, a lot of most of the things that you're doing. And the entire ending, like that entire finale, is heavily borrowed from you know the the walk. Yeah, with, yeah, with yeah. The, Leading into I Love Big Brother sort of thing. Like that 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 entire finale with Sam is is very much after he goes into the um the Ministry of. Truth is a history of truth. I haven't read 1984 in forever. Uh, it's been a while too. Maybe we should um, do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, maybe it might be Ministry of Love because Ministry of Love would be torture. Um, but everything coalesced in this movie, and so this movie kind of like took all the parts of my life. I see this at around. I think I finally actually see this around 19, 18-ish. Uh-huh. And the reason I see this is because I see the long Good Friday. Huh. And I just, like, fucking get back into Bob Hoskins. Like, as a kid, always into Bob Hoskins. I watch, and I, I, I regret not putting this on my list, but for some reason, I just don't feel like it deserved a place in the end, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watch that constantly, and... Um, Super Mario Brothers is another movie oh, I watch man. a lot. And speaking of borrowing aesthetic, Super Mario Brothers heavily borrows from the aesthetic of this. I would only agree with that if I thought that the Super Mario Brothers movie was made <laughs> with the intentionality that they were going to borrow something from anybody. But you have to admit, like, watching that movie, like, there is a lot of... Sure, but I'm pretty sure someone told I'm that thinking... director that there's pipes in Super, in Super Mario Brothers, the game, and they were just like, we could do pipes. We could do I, lots I of pipes. And that's, that's maybe the thing for me is like I watch a lot of movies I enjoy back and like so, so I access this because of Bob Hoskins. Yeah. And like this is the thing that kind of like I think maybe brought Bob Hoskins up because this predates, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Sure. Where he takes off. A couple years, yeah. Um, yeah, Who Framed Roger Rabbit's 88. This is 85. Um, you know, and you get like you get his like long Good Friday like distilled herald in this mm-hmm. almost like very straight and narrow. Um and so, like, this is just coalescing for me, all these ideas. So I this, like, with Bob Hoskins, and then I watch this, and, and the thing that, that strikes me is now every, this is, like, the distilled version of aesthetic I love. Mm. Like, when I see a movie that looks like Brazil, I 
tend to tend to fall into line with loving it unless it does it a real disservice. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Alex Prose is like Dark City. We talk about that. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And that's just so the guy loves Brazil. much Brazil. Yep. You know, and, and then like to the same extent, like the Wachowski brothers, like Matrix to like a certain extent tries to do that or like even like. I want to say like no, no, I don't want to say Nolan's Inception, but like more like I think it's Doctor true, Strange though. or whatnot. No, I think like they borrow these things, they borrow this certain sort of weird aesthetic from it, and they don't do it as. I well. think Nolan's Gotham is a and Nolan's Gotham, Tim Burton's Gotham, like times a million. Well, especially with the is, timeline, yeah, is it's like <laughs> not so super. much Schumacher's. <laughs> no, well, no one really knows what his inspiration was for those movies, but I, I respect it. Yeah, I mean everything looks good in a crooked close-up. You know, um, but yeah, the, those movies are like they ingested Brazil and it became a part of their filmmaking aesthetic. You know what I mean? You could just tell. It's just it's just obvious. Burton more so than Nolan, but it's there in Nolan. You know what I mean? The industrialization of Gotham City in I mean, Nolan's hands is look, very Brazil. You look at your worst directors, and, and this is the thing. Like maybe, like this is Brazil's a brain burn for me. Like look at. Paul W.S. Anderson. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Event Horizon. With, like, the one death in Event Horizon. I can't remember. The, I, it's not Jason Isaac's character. It might be Jason Isaac's character. Who dies by, like, getting hung up with his flesh stretched. I feel like that is Jason Isaac. Like, his flesh, flesh completely stretched out. Mm-hmm. Like, so much of that is borrowed from, like, you know, Catherine Hildman's, like, facial re-surgery mm. and everything. Like, you don't get... In the mainstream visions of that, you know, like just this, this kind of like grotesquely beautiful aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. Like it's 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 aberrant, but it's somehow symmetrical. Mm-hmm. And and like, well, he's not. A and that's bad the thing filmmaker. about uh, Terry. Gil- no, Terry Gilliam. Oh no, Terry Gilliam's I think is an amazing yeah, filmmaker. Yeah. Like Time Bandits is fucking amazing. Yeah. Um. And that's the thing, like this movie symmetry to me it's 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 a perfect blend of of ideas for me that are kind of coalescing in what i was reading of aesthetics i was looking for in film in performances i was looking for um it just it blends so well it's 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 harmonious Mm. and but it's grotesque and it's uncomfortable um and it's 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 misanthropic but at the same time, it has such this artistic melody to it that it, 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 even the most grotesque things you see, even the, the series of tubes of the air conditioning and whatnot kind of strung around have this grace to them. Mm. It's kind of like this film's like a ballet dancer, you know, dancing among a pool of blood. Awesome. That's why it's on my list. It's <laughs> a good reason. Um yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I, for a long time, this is the best movie I'd ever seen. Yeah, no, I, I objectively looked at this for a while and I was like, what's, and like, there's story structures and whatnot that kind of like upend it for me, but it's, and what, like visually, I still, oh, so that's production a, design, I still say maybe this is the best film I've seen. It. And until that stuff, <coughs> until other stuff really started to matter to me, m- no movie had ever blown my mind open like this movie. So I came to this movie because my dad gave me Monty Python as 
like a 10 year old you know what i mean he was just like you know my mom gave me monty python as like a 10 year old so. exactly so that's, parent, like, that's a parent yep obligation you have to i've you given i've months. given my oh I've, we've already oh. my the kids quote the dark knight scene liberally oh right right, right. Um, we talked about that the black knight so it was just the next in line after you know, Holy Grail, which we'll talk about. After Life of Brian, which we'll talk about. Oh, after, we've already talked about Holy Grail. Right, so. right. But we'll, 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 we'll really more. dig into it. after, And now for something completely different. After, like, inhaling a flying circus videos. After, you know, Jabberwocky and Time Bandits and stuff like that. After Maybe even, not so much Meaning of Life. Well, I, I like Meaning of Life. Meaning of Life has, like, a ton of, like, amazing shit in it. It does, but it's, it's just... Disjointed. Weirdly dark. It's just too dark. Yeah, yeah. And, and grosses me out. Disjoint. Yeah, no, it's gross. Yeah. And um, it's always grossed me out. I've never found the stomach bursting scene even remotely funny. It's not funny. Yeah. It's just. It just hurt. It just. It feels shitty. Yeah. Um. Although I love them for doing it. Um. Even after stuff like, I think I came to this movie after. Like twelve monkeys. You know I came I mean? to this after Twelve Monkeys too. Where it was, I came to this after Fear and Loathing. Because I think Brazil, which yeah, I think and is, I think after Fear, which and I Loathing, think is his bad, which I think is his like one bad movie. Well, in Fear of Loathing in Las well, Vegas, well, he's, he's had several bad movies. We could do a whole episode about. I mean, I've our seen, relationship between Fear and Loathing it, in Las Tide, Vegas, not Tideland. What, what the hell was that he did with Jeff Bridges? Oh, um, yeah, Tideland. Tideland, yeah, I've seen Tideland. That's, I, that's, that's the book is Tideland is pretty good that he based it off of. Um, because I'm a Terry Gilliam guy, so when I yeah, saw he was same. making this movie and it was a novel, it was based off a novel, I was like, I'm going to go get that novel. For some reason, um, I went to Tideland expecting Terry Gilliam to be doing a Terrence Malick, and I shouldn't have. No, no, no. Too many baby doll heads for, mm. for, a, <laughs> for a Terrence Malick movie. Um, so I came to see all that wheat shots, and you're like, oh, maybe. But he's just so good. I mean, or even like... I even I saw the Brothers Grimm opening night. I love Brothers because Grimm. Because of because of this movie. So this I will m- stand besides Brothers Grimm. I yeah. like it. I've always thought of this movie as like my birthright. Because I felt like that way about <clears throat> Monty Python. I felt like there's a bunch of stuff that my dad and we can do like a se- we could have a separate conversation of like things my dad gave me. We could call this episode, you know, if we were just posting this half of it like things my dad gave me. Like certain bands um a certain allegiance to certain things like a certain like work ethic I guess but like Monty Python is one of those things and when I found Brazil finally when I got to Brazil it seemed like the most significant thing anyone had ever shared with me ever in a life because nothing nothing to that point in my film watching career had looked sounded or felt like motherfucking Brazil. You remember the first time you saw Brazil? You're just like, what the hell is this? And not like in a bad way, in a kind of like, my mind is exploding way. I'll tell you this. I started Brazil like at seven o'clock. I got a, I brought a criterion from the library. Ooh, yeah. Um, at my high, at my college. You know, I sat down, started it, all my roommates and some of my friends from next door, because we had that like that two apartment thing going on. Yeah, you did. At at the end. Like, it was just me alone. And after, like, 20 minutes, there was, like, five of us just sitting on the couch watching it. Because it sucks you in. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's amazing. Um, and so it's weird, to come, it's weird to come back to it because now I watch movies so differently. 
Um, I don't know how you felt watching it again. Like, I don't know if you watched it again for this. The same wonder. The same, like, the same, just like, I gave it the same length of rope. But it's a different, it's the same thing for me, too, but it's like a different wonder. Because Terry Gilliam has moved so far away from what people consider, like, an, like, an, like as auteurs, you know what I mean? Like, Terry Gilliam still makes Terry Gilliam movies, and he released a movie with Adam Driver in it. Like, this, <laughs> I think this year, it's like Adam Driver's fifth movie. Yeah, in the man, year. Who, the movie he's been yeah. trying to make forever. Exactly. Um, <coughs> man who killed Don Quixote. And that still looks like, still looks and feels like a, a, I, didn't, you know, I haven't seen a it. Ter- I, I've seen pieces of it. Um, still looks and feels like a Terry Gilliam movie. Um, and. But he's not, he's almost considered like a washout. You know what I mean? Because he has never made another, like he, the Fisher King got a bunch of Oscar nominations and, and like was well regarded. 12 Monkeys was kind of a big deal. Um, I, I, but I think. But after that, he was just, he's just kind of regarded as a, 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 a weird, like a curiosity, like a peddler of, of, of cool shots, but like incoherent almost. But is that true though? Cause like, I think he's considered that, I, but he's such a brain worm for people. Well, so that's Cause people are still talking yes. about time bandits. People fucking, they remade 12 monkeys just off his aesthetic has like a three or four season, like a sci-fi channel. Fear and loathing in Las Vegas still gets brought up constantly. A and lot not of because of the fucking like book or article. Like it was a book article book book. Uh, from Hunter S. Thompson because of that movie. You yeah. Know? A lot like, of douchebags I went to high school with were obsessed with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the movie. Like, people come back to the Brothers Grimm and go, like, Brothers Grimm is not nearly as bad as we said it was. Blah, well, blah, I mean, blah. it has Matt Damon in it, but, like, that's, we got to forgive some well, that's movies. That's got Heath Ledger, too. It does. That's the thing. That's got two things. But it was also, that's the thing, you know, seeing. People uh, are even saying, like, Imaginary and Dr. Parnassus, uh, Parnassus is, is, like, is a lot better than that's a That's a really good movie. It is really good. It's yeah. a really good movie. And so it's... It's muddled because of circumstances out of its control. Yes. Watching this movie now... Don't mix drugs, people. I... Or just, you know, don't take as many drugs. Yeah. Watching this movie now, on Criterion... Take weed and, like, psychedelics, that's it. Again, for the record, the Criterion edition of this film is one of the great Criterion releases. This is one of the best Criterion releases. Um, this might be, like, the best... It's, well, it's I mean, for 2005, Mario thought this was the best Criterion release. Oh, I don't yeah. know if they've... Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the 14 years since then, they probably released better Criterion. When you watch this movie now, having seen hundreds of or thousands of movies or whatever, there is still nothing that looks like some of these things. He is, he is a film artist of the highest caliber. And there are shots in this movie which... People have been trying to replicate, as you've said, for fucking years, and they just can't do it. Okay, I'm going to say it right now. In terms of visually creating a palette, there are two directors who are like on the top tier. And I'm, you know what? I'll I'll put my face in front of the bullet of, of film criticism. <laughs> I don't think anyone needs you to do that. It's Terry Gilliam and Jean Renoir. Hmm. That's amazing. That's the hottest take ever. I feel like we have to break this portion out I'm and just, like put I'm it on saying, YouTube. So like, like Terry Gilliam is able to create these these really crazy aesthetics that that disjoint you mentally for the purpose of the story. You know, they they it it, it is an aesthetic that just, the mise en scene is utterly destroyed. Mm-hmm. Like everything you're seeing on screen, and maybe you know, maybe like. Um, Tokyo story director. Why am I forgetting his name right now? Uh, Ozu. Ozu. Like maybe Ozu is 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 probably really 
maybe three. I'll put Ozu. I'll put Ozu as number three. Well, it's the people that do um, the say. It's the people that do this thing. Yeah, and this is their language. They like, invented a language. So like that Gilliam invented this language of really discordant, utterly just chaotic mise en scene in order to create the the thought process he needed to be. Whereas Renoir and Ozu. Uh, Renoir was really controlled, but like down to earth on the level, you know, and, and created like an emotional cadence you wanted. And Ozu just presented things that kind of give you this kind of weird Chekhov's gun sort of yeah, yeah. fear. This this un, this uneasiness with very common things. But I say those three are like the masters of each of these. It's like Renoir is, is life has is. Ozu is life slightly theatric. And Gilliam is like life fucking like... Completely well, in the absurd. So we like to talk about symmetry a lot. We like to talk about we like to talk about centering things a lot on this thing. I think one of the things I haven't watched a Renoir movie in in, in a while. One of the things I became they, I be, I recently, recently become obsessed with Renoir because I, I had never seen Rules of the Game. I'd seen other Renoir, and I just like have I was like, why is this so highly rated? And now I'm like obsessed with Rules yeah, it's of the fantastic. Game. Uh, it's another amazing Criterion release. Um, Remember we talked about Tokyo Story, and Ozu does that thing where he's got the layers of of scene, the layers of image. You know what I mean? Where there's just he's just stacked people and things in each of these scenes. Yeah, he's and doing like what a, like he's doing what like Orson Welles did with Citizen Kane, and kind of like. But he's doing it magnifying it, to right? The exactly, degree. and to a and to a better effect. He's not just doing it to <coughs> do it. He's doing it, or he's not doing it for metaphor. He's doing it for. To illustrate a depth of feeling. He's yeah. illustrating to do a it's depth of character. 100% for emotion. Gilliam, I noticed in this movie, really likes thirds. Mm-hmm. He likes situating There's things no centers. in There's thirds. No centers. The centers are the buildings. Oh, Those yeah. are the centers. and But that carries like a symbolism with it. You know what I mean? Like the church, which is... You don't even know right when you see it that it's a church. But you know there's nowhere else for this movie to go at the but, end of the movie... But a church, and it ends up being a church, and it's great, and it, everything's centered when he walks into it. But then the movie, then it splits, then it but splits the into about, its thirds. But the thing about thirds is the thirds are slightly off. Yeah. They're always well. What's they're not part? They're not three lanes like symmetry like that. No, like, no, no. Lane symmetry you want from like I'm uh, filmmakers kind of like losing me here with with three lane symmetry. Um, Try to think of somebody who's really heavily into like three lane symmetry. Okay. Uh, I, yeah, nothing's coming up that because yeah. we didn't plan this um, part of the conversation. But a lot of directors kind of do that, like cut into that rule of thirds. Linklater likes to do thirds a lot. It's a little, um, bit, a little bit different effect. It's a different effect, but Linklater <laughs> does like his thirds. He just, does like just thirds, for his yeah. aesthetic. It's, it's not it's not for emotional but sense, but of, just to 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 create uh, like uh, a nice image. But like Gilliam, like breaks that line slightly. I'll pause so it two like, scenes you to that, you. You get that nice line. My, and Gilliam's like, mm, I'm gonna put something slightly over that line, so you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, you so always feel uncomfortable. So the two scenes that always stick out to me as masterpieces of film are um, the dream sequence when we first see the babies, yeah, the baby faces, where they're dragging the the cage, which is that weird, like, you know, dappled glass train thing. He's imagining, um, he's imagining um, Jill in it. And, they're pu- and she's floating in the air, and those things are just pulling it along. And you have Jill on one side, and you have the things on the other side. And then we get confronted. And those th- th- that shot is fucking amazing. It's, um, <coughs> it's so dark. And then you see the babies 
the baby masks and it gets even fucking darker. And then the other scene, speaking of baby masks, is where um, Jack has to go torture Sam in that unbelievably, unspeakably, unreasonably big chamber. Um, when they leave him and he sees who he has to torture and he is wearing the baby mask and he turns around and his the baby mask is in one third and Sam is in the opposite third. Mm-hmm. And it has a fish it kind of has a fishbowl effect, which is doubled because the room they're in is kind of like a gray dome with all of those like striations on it. So it has a it's like a double dome effect. Like a, a, a horizontal dome and like a vertical dome. There is nobody else who makes that shot. There's just isn't. There isn't anybody else who makes either of those shots. There isn't anybody else who does all those cloud sequences with Sam in reality. And I keep going. I keep going back to like the air conditioning re- repair scene, which is just a minor scene when they're fixing it. Like, there's a level of anxiety there that you feel, not necessarily because of the actions of the performers of like Zero or Hoskins, but because of the fact that all the cinematic rules you have there are fucking thrown out the window. Yeah. You know, everything is not in the place it should be. Well, and, and so everything that's... is – all those – like I said, it mise en scenes of porn because everything is there is evoking an emotion it wants you to have. You could watch this movie without sound. Like you could – without yeah. sound yep. and without subtitles. And you're going to feel the sense of uneasiness and then comfort and then ultimate uneasiness that fucking Gilliam wants you to feel. And so this is one of the – exactly. And so like with the desk scene, like you know where the desk is well, shared again, probably, between two things. Probably also a credit to like Roger, Roger Pratt who doesn't really do much after yeah. this. No, none of these 80s, direct, these 80s people. Do. <laughs> they all worked all the time. I mean he ended up – Roger Pratt – did do a big movie with Tim Burton soon after this. He did Batman. Yeah. There you go. And he did Batman Returns too, right? Uh, he did not do Batman Returns. But he did do Mary Shelley's uh, The Branagh Frankenstein. Yes, he did. I remember looking at that. Um, it's 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 a fascinating movie artistically. I think one of the reasons it's 36 is that it's, as we talked about on this podcast a lot, it's an overwhelming visual experience. The history of it, my relationship to it, is slightly overwhelming. Um, the emotional impact of this movie is not really there. Oh no, of course. You know what I mean? Like it's, I would. So next, these next two films. This film, the for me on my list, this film is my visual aesthetic. My number thirty-five is my. Fucking, which if I had ever had a dream of being anything in, in film, it'd be a writer or editor. And my number 35 is writing, editing, aesthetic. Like, well, it's me. funny. Now that... Um, and like after that, it's just all emotion. Our number 35 now is going to include a lot of dead people. But it's the same thing where it's a visual... My, the director of mine, 35, is not Terry Gilliam. You know what I mean? But he has signatures. He has things that he does. Um, But those... Are you changing up the list again? No, no, no. Those, in that context, evoke an emotion where... An interior emotion where my... Where this one, it just kind of invokes awe. You know what I mean? Like awe at the craft of it. Not so much like interior awe. 
I mean, it's not Gilliam, but... Oh, okay. I just didn't know where that was going to no, no, no. Um. <coughs> so, yeah. So, that's... It's... It's, um... It's different in that sense. It's 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 weird. It's it's a hard thing to explain. I'm going to have a hard time explaining it, you know, in January. <laughs> in January, when we get back to our list, you have time. At the end of you January, have time, time to, to think, think about, about it. it. But um, but yeah, that's where that's where that's where this movie resides for me in the pantheon. Although I can't. It's it's funny though. I can't imagine. Can't imagine like. This sounds weird and stupid. Can't imagine like cinema without Brazil. You know what I mean? Like for all the reasons you just described, like everything that came after it, people have been trying to redo, like Brazil. Redo our, redo our like. I don't want. They've been trying to not everyone's trying to redo. They've been trying to match Gilliam's aesthetic for a long time, but Gilliam's aesthetic is like you said, distilled perfectly in Brazil. Like, everything he's ever wanted to do in his life is here on display with his I miniatures mean, and, and hugeness and sets and everything. And Some directors, I think, have been trying to convey that emotion. I think Janu's trying to convey that emotion. I don't necessarily think, like, Alex Preos is, is trying to do that. I think he's just trying to, like, borrow. No, in the witch house, he's probably aren't either. Yeah. But it, def- it, it sets the foundation for what this world looks like. For what any kind of future dystopian... Um, culture looks like it just is Almost. it starts with it starts with ducks you know Almost what I mean future dystopian you, you, maybe, you, maybe not a movie we'll talk about a little later well that's one of the yeah. and that's what it's funny now watching it again watching it now I just want to I want to spend an, a separate hour talking about ducks you know what I mean and what the ducks <laughs> represent and what the ducks are doing and how the ducks are used and the shape of the ducks and like just everything, we got to sta- save that for the substantial mallard podcast. Substantial mallard podcast. <laughs> okay, we re rank our top one hundred ducks. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know if I have. I know a hundred ducks. I think I just know the mallards. I mean, how many? There's a lot of. I know. There's peaking, a lot of people. Peking ducks. Yeah. That, you're talking about that? Think about, you know, the entire cast of the Mighty Ducks. That's true. Also, the Stanley Let's, Cup winning Ducks. A lot of those people have gone on to big careers. Look mm-hmm. at Keenan Thompson. Not Goldberg. Joshua Jackson. Joshua Jackson. Yeah, Goldberg has had a rough rough time. Today. Oh, has he? Yeah. What about Averman? What's Averman been doing? I don't know, man. I, I, that is a movie I refuse to go back to, even though I have Disney+. Plus. Um, what about sponsor sponsor of this episode? What about by the way. Gee. Disney? What's Gee doing? But I don't know because you're naming all these characters. I just refuse to go back to that movie because I'm sure it's going to be ruined for me. I'm sure it's one of those ones I have like nostalgia glasses. What's on. Banks doing? Wasn't Banks Joshua Jackson or is that the bad guy? Banks is the bad guy. The kind of bad guy who became the not a bad guy. Cake eater. I'm pretty sure you can't say cake eater in modern <laughs> in 2019 culture anymore. Why is that? I think he's calling him like gay. Oh, really? I don't know what else cake eater is supposed to mean. You know what? When I saw cake e- when I saw that movie and I heard cake eater, I thought it meant he really liked to make out with girls. Why would that be bad? Because I was like six. Don't forget, this is the early 90s. I was six or seven. So I was like, oh, making out with girls. That's Here's gross. a hilarious thing about the early 90s, like, folks. If you were obsessed, like it was, I thought when he said cake, I'm not kidding. When he said cake eater, 
I thought he meant he was so obsessed with kiss, kissing girls that he wouldn't hang out with friends, and that made him lame. No, it's not. It's not. I don't think that's what it is at all. One of the things that I've learned a lot. But don't from, you like seven-year-old Mario's like mentality? I love it. <laughs> kissing girls so much you don't hang out with your friends. I love that mentality because you've you had seen some fucked up shit by then, and you still thought that's what it meant. But er, the early '90s were tough because, like, so I watch a lot of Frasier. I love Frasier. Is that early 90s, though? Yeah. Um, David Hyde Pierce is... David Hyde Pierce is gay. They spend whole episodes... In real life? Yeah. In in real life, yeah. They spend whole episodes of that TV show roundly mocking gay people. (sighs) But I guess in, like, 1994, you just had to... If you were gay, you just had to go along with it because the culture said you had to. Was Will and Grace problematic? I don't think so, because I think it was later. It was like mid nineties, right? And they were the two characters were openly gay, so they weren't like they were just mocking themselves as people and the and main not the guy. Culture. The main guy was straight, though, right? I think. No, both the both. Um, I think, no, I think I don't think I know Sean Hayes. Is oh, gay. Eric McCormick is Eric McCormick not is straight. Is straight? Yeah. Yeah. I had my mom arguing with me that that uh, um, Megan Mullally was gay, and I'm like, no, she's married to Nick, Nick Offerman. Well, that's I mean, the, don't ruin the genius of, couple. The genius of Will and Grace. Like culturally, is that they didn't they didn't mock the lifestyle; they mocked the the, the people, the perception the, of yeah. So, th- or the perception of whatnot. Um, but in Frasier, they openly mocked being gay. This is uh, like Frasier was like the Ellen era, like where... it was before Ellen. It started before Ellen. Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought Frasier started like ninety seven. I thought Frasier was post Friends. No, it was just is just after Cheers. I'm not a big Frasier guy. Frasier struck me as an East Coast show. I just didn't like it. It can't because it's a West Coast show. Yeah, but it started as Cheers, which was on the East Coast. Well, it's very intellectual, so it makes sense that you would think it's an East Coast show. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yes! You East Coast people have fucking... I did it. You East Coast people have fucking... Self high five. Oh, um, calm down, Diamond Dallas Page. <laughs> you know the best part of... DDP is? No. The Diamond Cutter. We're all done. Um, yeah, Brazil is great. I fucking love Brazil. We'll be right back with a, a whole bunch of new movies. Yeah, yeah we, new we're movies. going deep. So we're doing a little bit of catch up here, Mario, with some foreign films that have been um, either added to. I actually feel like one of them has been on Prime for a while. We just didn't notice, and one of them recently got added to you know the rental activity on. On all the streaming channels and yeah, what have you. Yeah, as much as we love Criterion, I think this was available for release for one week. Yeah. Well, I think it was one week, and then it had that one weirdo, like, 520 one, like, yeah. showing, you know, in the one DVD screen or whatever. Basically for the 70-plus crowd. Yeah. yeah. The 70-plus crowd who just go to movies. Like, that's their only cultural activity, which is an awesome cultural activity. Yeah. I hope to be 70-plus one day and going to all the movies. I won't make it. Um, this movie is... Did not get shortlisted for the Academy Award, if I remember correctly. No. Um, it's from Colombia. It is Manos.
Manos relates a little bit to a movie we talked about a bunch of weeks ago, um, Claire Denis' White Material, in mm -hmm. the sense that there's a conflict, but it's pretty much an unnamed conflict. It's just much a more conflict. Abstracted. Yes. Yeah. Um, that is happening somewhere in Colombia, and I we only know it's Colombia because the director has said that it's Colombia and it was filmed in Colombia. Um, but they don't ever say Colombia at any point in the movie. Um, but it's some South American country. They're speaking Spanish. Um, a group of what the internet would call kids and what I would call young adults to adults are uh, entrenched in this encampment in the hills and um, are just waiting waiting for for battle to do whatever is needed the a messenger comes and he puts them through some workouts and he agrees that two people can get married and then they get married and then he also issues them a cow um that they should be milking and taking care of as a sign of good faith Shakira, Shakira the cow yeah as a sign of good faith to someone in, uh, a supporter of theirs um the cow ends up getting killed uh which spirals this group of young adults into um a different kind of Existence, which a lot of reviewers have called a Lord of the Flies esque existence, and I'm not sure how I'm not sure how close that is. Lord of the Flies has a kind of spirituality to it, which this movie doesn't really have. No, this movie's more guttural. Um, it goes. There's from... a reason why we see these people. Like I think it heavily tries to skew the Lord of the Flies early on when the messenger shows up and they constantly do that grappling sequence and they show it for like a minute. Oh, the Beau Travail sequence? Yeah, of yeah. the grappling. Like that's skewing any spirituality in this film. Right. Um, the only spirituality is in the vistas. Yeah. I mean, the cinematography... The land is... The cinematography by Jasper Wolf in this movie is fucking incredible. This actually has a really good... Um, production team i mean so you got michael levi doing the score which is which is amazing great. um jasper wolf is largely unknown he's done, you know he's just like any cinematographer he's done shorts do he's think, done commercials do you think michael levi can like sleep walk her way through a great score by this point yeah yeah um she's i mean she her work is fantastic um she just knows how to create Amazon. and then yorgos mavrops Sarides, who works with Yorgos Lathamos, who I think has been nominated for one Oscar? <coughs> yeah, he was nominated for The Favorite. For The Favorite. Um, the movie descends eventually uh, away from this encampment, which is just, the encampment is just these concrete structures built into these hills um, into the woods and along the riverbank. Um, it gets increasingly more violent. People, people die, and then we get a little bit more clarification as to what happens. Um, or as to what is happening or to what is supposedly happening. Um, and But by the time everything's clarified for us a little bit, the movie ends. Um, I was not prepared for this movie at all. I didn't read any reviews of it. I knew what it was because we talk a lot about, you know, what's coming. Oh, we got to see Manos. Manos is this. It, you know, won whatever prize, blah, blah, blah. Um, it kind I don't want to say blew my mind because that's very strong but it really I found it a very powerful film um on a number of on a number of levels I, a lot of it to relate back to what we just talked about with, with Brazil from a craft perspective um 
this person and all these people involved know what they're doing, especially from conveying emotions, um, from con- to, uh, of conveying mood and, and atmosphere. Um, this movie is just loaded with mood and atmosphere. Um, it's also really simple, which I kind of love, where it almost seems like a like a budgetless film. You know what I mean? Where it's, it's just like you got a bunch of people who really love making movies and they went into the woods at some point and just made a movie. But they've watched so many movies that they just did it amazingly. Well, it's – it's so it's – I mean, the director – really, like, really quick. The director, Alejandro Landres, I think this is his third or fourth – Third feature. Yeah. Third feature. So it's not like he's never made a movie before. I'm just saying that it has it has an energy to it that feels like that. Well, it's really kinetic, but it's tightly kinetic, so it's it's really close. Like every like it's you could definitely it's a smaller budgeted film overall, but because it's always so close and tight mm-hmm. and like it, it establishes those shots and whatnot, it establishes kind of those vistas, but then everything else besides that's really tight, you're able to get so much kinetic energy and so much like limitlessness to mm-hmm. it um, without the need for like a huge amount of money you know you right. get you get everything from these performances you get everything from just that camera being there mm-hmm. um, but I really I I really loved it um, I was happy to have seen it um, it confirmed my thinking about certain things and changed my thinking about other things in relation to um the movies that were released this year, um, I think it aligns a lot to something like High Life where it's really conceptual. Um, and there's just so many, there's so many visual metaphors. There's so much symbolism um, from... In what, what sense? Like what, what struck you? I mean, as the movie moves forward, it didn't, it occurred to me like halfway through when, so those concrete structures to set the scene for people, I mean, you can go rent this for five bucks on Amazon or Vudu or wherever. You probably get on Red Google Play or whatever. In a couple weeks or two dollars. Um, they're in this, you know, pastoral hillside, and there's just these concrete rectangles just shooting up out of the ground. Um, and to get inside them, they've dug underneath them, and they go underneath them, and there's stairs and things inside of them. They're obviously some kind of fort. Um, a, assuming they didn't build them for this movie, that they're there for something. I don't know what they're there for. Um, but the, they act almost as, for the beginning part of the movie, they're always in the background of something. They act almost as like totems in the beginning part of this movie. Mm-hmm. And then as, you know, so there's a battle around the totems and then they are forced to leave the totems. And that's when the See, wheels would, come off of their would, ethos a little bit. Less, I would say less totems for me and more like womb-like. Oh, there's see, like I think womb-like quality. To I them. think they're related to ritual. Mm. You know what I mean? Where they're really, re- they're heavily related. So remember, they make well, the is, bed. True, yeah. They make the bed. They put the bed inside, like one of the small ones, um, for the new for the newly married couple. Um, it's where they for go. Lady to, and it's wolf. for Lady and Wolf. Oh, yeah. It's where they go to hide. So they've 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 got a a, a hostage, uh, El Doctora, played by. Um, Julianne Nicholson, who's excellent in this, um, and they go to hide at like in you know the basement of one of these these structures, and then they emerge from one of these structures, and then they when they leave the structure, that's when the mission or the the goal of protecting the doctor for the greater good of whatever the cause is, 
that the messenger and these kids represent um, is broken. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And as that's broken, other things start to kind of invade their... The word that came to my mind instant, like just right as I'm talking is language, but invade their psyche. So um, Bigfoot does this thing a little bit earlier in the movie where he sucks on his hand a lot and he's just, you know, he's making like a sucking sound. He sucks on like the heel of his, the heel of his palm. Um, towards the end of the movie, all of the, I'm just going to say kids because that's what everyone's saying. All of the, or all of the soldiers in this little platoon or whatever are come together sucking on their hands. You know what I mean? Like this is the new thing that means, this is the new thing that identifies it. This is the new thing that is well, their yeah. thing. And I would say like, I don't know what that's why I say like the womb like quality because like there's a replication constantly. There is a the return pers- to something. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah exactly. Um, <laughs> and, and a replication in the sense of, sorry, getting over a cold. That's why you hear coughs every so often. Um, a replication in, in the sense of like identity, like they, like they don't have a necessary kind of like blank slates. Yeah. Except as the group. Sure. Um, and, and to me, like those, those totems, as you called it, kind of like a womb. Cause they're like, kind of like, it came to me almost as a sense of, of they all came from this. Well, the space and like is the entire idea of like pre- talking about it just being the organization. Mm-hmm. As we joked, and, you know, this is they call it the organization. Yeah, yeah. In this. Like there's this kind of like, I don't want to say mystical, but there's a, a real sort of well, so abstracted idea of what's going on. It's weird that you mentioned the mystical. And I feel like I had a dream about this. This is deja vu. And we've had this conversation before. Like, I feel like I kept waiting for life the, is a time is a flat circle. Yeah. Tom. I kept waiting for the mystical to creep in to this movie. Like, I don't know about yeah, you, you but I kept waiting for something. Your, vaguely... It feels like magic realism is going to yes, happen. Exactly. And it doesn't. And I think that's one of the things that I really love about it is that like when that those a... moments come, like want to come in, like then El Doctor like chokes that girl to death. Which is what I and think drowns which I find her, you know what I mean? Fascinating because it's I think it's told through the veil of what they're seeing. Because you as the viewer are kind of seeing it slightly through their eye. And so you kind of think this bigger idea or like this That's bigger awesome. than world thing is Good gonna work. happen. Yep. But it never does because ultimately like the organization or whatnot. Like has a kid or even has somebody who's a young adult but who's been very sheltered from the world you don't see a country or whatnot, whether it be like a country sort of fight or a drug war or whatnot. You don't see it necessarily as being that. You see it as just like, this is us. This is like family. This yeah. is an organization is just like the clearly delineated way of saying us, just us. And you're always expecting that kind of like shoe to drop and something otherworldly to happen or something larger than the world, which is like really well represented with those kind of like monolisks in the beginning. Um, because that's the expectation. Mm. You know, you continue this kind of like pageantry of repetition of, you know, you even get like their, their messenger leaders, like the small person, like a little person. Um, favorite guy. He's so, but he has this, so cut. Yeah. But he has like this, this weird, like infamiliarity to him. Like, like, like I want to say mysticism, but it's like folk tailedness. comes in on a horse. Yeah. Um, if you look at it through the scope of a child, you keep thinking like something big is going to happen, something grandiose, something beyond imagination. But then you realize, no. Well, and that's just, like that's why it leads to like that ending where Rambo like presents like strong characters just like fucking destroyed at the end because of the fact that like 
all of that's been torn away. Like all well, of those... because she's becomes unnamed <coughs> or he becomes unnamed person. Yeah. You know, we have this unnamed But all those well, all I those forget hopes, what the word they use. All those hopes and expectations of like this bigger world outside of what they've been doing and this this grander scheme are just torn away. And well, now it's just fucking a fight between poor people, between, you know, well, so whatever, the, the director like, whatever world you kind of expect. Alejandro Landres said um that in Manos, and this is like a quote, in Manos, youth serves as a metaphor for Colombia as a nation. It's a young country still searching for its identity, and the dream of peace is fragile, tentative, and recurring. It's a stage in life in which we are caught between wanting company and just as desperately wanting to be alone. Manos looks to evoke this angst and conflict from the inside rather than create re- reactions of pity or outrage in the audience by depicting what could be perceived as a foreign conflict. I think that relates to exactly what you're saying in that um, so it's not about just one thing. It's not about this conflict. It essentially becomes about a bunch of smaller conflicts of uh, within these people and then subsequently within this group um, where each of their conflicting ideas about what's supposed to be happening here um, all of a sudden come into conflict with each other. And so it's less about this one person versus this other person. It's about conflicting ideas. Um, And that's kind of where I thought that the movie thematically was interesting. So what did you, what did, what did you think of this? What, what, like, you know, not what grade would you give it, obviously, because we don't we don't do grades here. But like, I give it a solid prime cut. You know, nice marbleization. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is some nice marbleization <laughs> in the cow they cut up. Yeah, which I mean, that cow shot. I mean, so that's where this movie really came together for me was in the cow shot. Um, again, perfectly centered. There's a cow hanging in front of the one of those monolithic structures, concrete monolithic structures. In the middle of this thing, with all this fog hanging on there, I was just like, holy fucking shit. This movie gets it right. And then the next scene where they're all cutting it up and you have that Michael Levi. It's almost like a, a, like a swarm of bees just kind of like buzzing around this. these kids cutting up this, this cow. Um, it was just really powerful for me. It's, for me, one of those movies I still have to chew on for a while. It's like under the skin. To, to keep it to Michael Levi yeah. sort of thing. You you watch it initially, and like I, I felt like I responded to it aesthetically. Like, and I appreciated what it was doing, and I, I love the shots of the vistas. You know, um, like Jasper was doing some great work here, and the closeness to it. You could see they're doing a lot with a little. Um, and, and the, you know, the, the point of view that it's presented is, is coherent and structured in a way of, for me, like, like seeing it through the innocence and expecting something greater mm-hmm. and never getting there. Um, but ultimately I just didn't respond to it emotionally, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and like, that's kind of, it's, it's like a bummer thing of like, yeah, I for agree me. Um, no, I agree with you. That's a like bummer. It's a bummer when you don't respond to it. Emotionally. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things like I can respect everything it's doing. I just didn't respond to it. Yeah. I get that. 
And it's, yeah. And I don't think I responded to it emotionally either. I think, I, I think it's just because, um, I don't, uh, I don't think the performances conveyed the sense of urgency or emotional depth that like the writing and the direction mm-hmm. and the production did. I, I feel as though there was a real disconnect there. Well, I feel like there, besides like, you know, Julianne Nicholson, um, they were trying to get something very specific out of each of the characters. And I, you know, I don't know how many of them are professional actors or how many of them are professional actors. I'm assuming all of them are professional actors, but they really needed each of them to be doing something very specific. Um, so there's not a lot of opportunities for Smurf to kind of, you know, emote besides yelling El Doctora, you know, 15 times at the end of the movie. Um, so from a performance standpoint, yeah, it's besides Julianne Nicholson, like no one's really... But it's, no it's, one's doing anything exceptional. It's less like the not doing anything exceptional, more that like it kind of all blends together for me. Hmm. Um, and I guess that's the problem is like a lot of there's a real disconnect between what's written and what's being shown and like what's being conveyed emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I just never felt like it reached like the performances reached the emotional depth that the um, direction that's that, fair that did and I, like, I compared it really heavily to Bo Travai where Bo Travai kind of fucking like, but came on this like level I mean Bo Travai I mean it's that it's, it's, movie it's unfair it's unfair <laughs> to kind of like if we did a night if we if we just adjusted our list that we're going to do in a couple weeks from to include 1999 films I think I have a fairly good idea of what our number one or two or maybe three, stretching it a three, little bit, yeah. uh, movie would be I on mean, that list. Yeah, there's definitely. So, I, I would not be surprised if Claire Denis doesn't pop up in both of those lists for us. So, um, yeah, I mean, so that's a that's a that's a different thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar to you. Yeah, um, one's one's a hanger on right now. Oh, really? <clears throat> but yeah, so that's that's Manos. I'm glad I saw it. No, it's I'm it's, really it's glad 100% I saw it. worth a lot. Like it's it's a if you kind of like that kind of movie, if you if, I don't I don't even think I think it's just it's worth flatly a watch. Well, I would say if like you're really into I do really disagree with the Lord of the Flies connection though. It's I just, more of a physical thing. Right, because the Lord of the I 100% agree with that. Lord of the Flies is more about like the eschewing of like a religious reality. Well, there's Whereas no Whereas this is an eschewing of like a pulling back of the veil. I'm going to be honest with you. The only reason Lord of the Flies is a good book is because, or effective book, is because it juxtaposes everything that everybody else is doing. A fat kid gets a skull crushed in. Piggy. Everyone, that, everything that everyone else is doing is juxtaposed with what Simon is doing. And if Simon is not there, then you have nothing. You have no anything. It's that he has been able to, as you say, askew like, the physical realm and find a spiritual awakening in this situation. Yeah. There's nothing spiritual happening on any level in Manos. No, no. It's all just of it's all the, the land. Yeah, it's all yeah. the flesh and of the land. So, um, all right, that's Manos. Catch up, catch up movie number one. What's catch up movie number two, Mario? So the second movie we're talking about, um, thematically similar, I would say, to Manos. Right? Got a bit of a question mark sort of world yeah. going yeah, yeah, yeah. on. Uh, alter- 
alternative, alternate mm, sort of universe? Not quite like an alternate. More something. Transit is definitely an alternate universe. It's something. Yeah. Um, this is the newest release from Christian Petzold, uh, Transit. Fuchs und Gans kommen nach Haus. Katz und Maus kommen nach Haus. Mann und Frau kommen nach Haus. Sie sind merkwürdig. Eine Frage noch. Was war das Letzte, das Sie geschrieben haben? German, Georges, is a political refugee from an unknown force that is sweeping across modern-day Europe. Um, it is based upon transit, based upon the Anna Sigurds 1944 novel of uh, the same name, which is just about national socialism. So mm -hmm. we could assume, basically, somehow Adolf Hitler traveled through time, got a bunch of polar bears with lasers on his head, and is sweeping Marseille. Bigger. Yeah, it's on HBO right now, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, it's, yeah, it's Watchmen. It's all about, right? Is that no, it's the Dark Materials. Oh. The Golden Compass. Is that, is that a happen? Is that started? Yeah. No, I don't watch that shit. I'm a theist. I can't, <laughs> I'm not allowed to watch that. Um, so he's he's hiding out in modern-day Paris. He has, uh, tries to deliver a letter to a man named Wendell, only to find out Wendell has committed suicide. Um, he takes his papers and realizes that maybe he can use these papers to find safe patch, passage to Mexico to escape this approaching regime. <coughs> On his way, he makes friends um, with some other refugees, including the uh, younger Driss. Um, they are Middle Eastern. We really never learn where they're where from. They're, they're from... Um... Not Morocco. Do, yeah, uh, is it Morocco? Maybe Morocco. Because um, of an M. Yeah, Melissa and, and Driss. Um, eventually, Driss suffers an asthma attack. He goes to a doctor, Richard, to take care of him. And when he goes to the doctor, he sees the doctor's mistress, Marie, who he finds out was Waddell's exiled, um, not exiled, uh, estranged wife. Uh, Georges falls in love. <coughs> Sorry, Jesus Christ, with Marie. Uh, a whirlwind romance comes along, and both of all of Richard is trying to find safe passage out. He talks about, you know, hiking across the Pyrenees, which is a suicide mission against the approaching, uh, we'll say German force, um, Austrian force, some kind of force. Yeah, let's just call it a spade a spade, Luxembourgian force. <laughs> Fucking Luxembourg. You think it's Luxembourg? Yeah. <laughs> they finally, they Sons finally found. They finally found the man and man strength. This is the movie. Uh, he uh, eventually is able to find papers um, to get him and Marie. He develops a romantic relationship with onto a boat. Uh, however, she kind of reveals during the trip about how she expects her husband, Waddell, to be there. He's always looking towards the back of the ship. Um, 
overrun with guilt, George leaves and gives Richard, who's kind of been languishing around, uh, not leaving his past, his identity tickets, and they travel off. Um, and then the Montreal, the ship they were expected to be on, uh, apparently hits a mine. Everyone dies. And George is left waiting at the wine bar. They stayed throughout the entire film. We've had the wine bartender kind of narrating the entire story to us. Um, waiting for Marie to show up. He sees somebody that looks like Marie, but it's not Marie. But uh, the approaching Luxembourgian force coming in <laughs> to take him hostage, to basically cleanse him, as they say, um, as he himself is a refugee. Just ends with him sitting there in the wine bar waiting. He's turned around and he smiles. Something makes some kind of face. Uh, this this movie. This is this is the movie for me this year so far. Huh. I'd say. This yeah. Is, yeah. I don't know why, but it fucking. I watched it. So I watched it the first time this weekend. It's on Amazon Prime. Yeah. So you have it's, it's you no have excuse, no excuses unless you don't have Amazon Prime. No. Then you, then you, <laughs> so apparently. You don't have anything, then, if you don't have Amazon Prime. Maybe you don't like boxes shipped to you. I guess. Um, yeah, this I watched this the first time. Pretty pretty bourbon buzz. <laughs> um, and it kind of blew my mind. And so I rewatched it again last night. Because if we've learned something from this podcast, it's that Mario never trusts his first opinion on a movie. He has to rewatch <laughs> a movie to make sure he actually believes that. And it blew my mind again. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, this hits, and I'm not sure why, maybe because it's, it's such a reserved film. It's, it's never bombastic to me. Mm. Are we going to disagree there? But not, <coughs> not, I think in reality, but I think in just the emotionally, underlying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's something happening underneath everything that's happening here. There's like an unspoken emotion. There's an unspoken something that is just omnipresent through the length of this movie. You know what I mean? This is a film utterly devoid of hope to me. Yes, 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 um, yes, yes. Even when you're hopeful, like even when they're but you're not talking to the Mexican consulate or to the United States consulate, there's always this undercurrent of nothing is going to be good on the other end. Even if they make it... Well, you know what's weird about that, Mario? Is that nothing... And I want to phrase this carefully. Nothing is all that bad. Like, if we're comparing... So this movie is... This book was about World War II. The underlying threat of whatever is happening in this book, which neither of us read, is I'm assuming... I'm all right. I'm assuming that, you know, a, a camp is waiting for you. You know what I mean? Or an execution squad or something. We are not privy to any of that information. There's more... You're, world... given, you're given a sense that's what's waiting. But there's more World War II executions seen in The Irishman than there are in this movie, which is essentially about World War II. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, but it's just... It's not there. And, like, the threat of that is not 100% fully realized per se. You know what I mean? Like the deaths that we see on screen are a suicide and then leg wound. Oh, that fucking suicide though, man. <laughs> it's horrible. But which like... is which is why which is why like and that's 
why this movie kind of like made the punch to me so much yeah, is yeah, because yeah. the horror of what is is so utterly present in what would seem to be a normal everyday sort of functioning world. Well, you, you talked know, about Kafka-esque with Brazil. I think this is also very... No, yeah, this is... He's a Kafka character. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, there is this... I don't want to say fatalism. There is this overwhelming sense of futility and the word I'm looking for, inevitability. Mm-hmm. In, in this world, you know, everyone is, is, I'm going to relate it to a shitty movie, Seeking a Friend at the End of the World. Oh, man, why? But just this, like, that movie so unsuccessfully tries to present, like, everyone on a day-to-day life, trying to live a day-to-day life on this careening path towards nothingness. Or a better movie, which is not necessarily careening towards a path of nothingness but careening more towards a path of inevitability because of the mental scope of which a person's locked into clean shaven mm. actually struck me yeah like clean shaven in this like it's really struck because they're kind of like they're on a track there's a possibility to get off that track onto a, a slightly rock like less rocky path like mm-hmm. you're not going to careen off a cliff you're just gonna go down a lot of jagged edges you know, yeah, you're gonna like to be a refugee, um, but there's this ultimate sense of futility, and I don't want to say hopelessness, but just like, just taking your hands off the wheel. Yeah, your inability to is, kind of express that, like that's what's with any kind of to me. concreteness is, I think, the nature of this movie. Yeah, that's what it's, it's doing. It's, so, what is on the other end? no matter whether it be just like a quick end or a camp end is such an inescapable horror that these people have bled that from their mind. Like they know it's there, but they are desperately trying to go about their everyday life in hopes that they can try to find a way out of it. Whoa. That doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> doesn't sound politically relevant at all. Well, no, I, that's, that's one of the reasons too. This movie punched me in the guts. Like this movie is to me like one of the more politically relevant films of our time. Mm. Like I think, I think watching something like this and seeing like a world of, I don't necessarily want to relate to like the Syrian crisis or whatnot, but relating it to a world of just like, you could be in this, like see it from the other end, you know, you feel that. Well, the movie that, not the movie, the thing that, the work of art that I kept thinking about when I was watching this movie was um, Thornton Wilder's play Our Town, where it's very... I won a trivia recently just because I remembered the name of that play. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> just because I know they named the city from the... They are like, this play was based on this town. I was like, Our Town. Yeah. I was like, I'm smarter. Um, I love Our Town. Um, it has an... Is it just because he's a Connecticut guy? No, 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 no. He's Hamden, right? I don't know. I think he's Hamden. Is that true? I have no idea. Mars gonna look it up. I um there's an innate meta quality to our town that is unspoken. And the same thing kind of happens here where you're not 100% sure when when uh George gets the document 
You know what I mean? He's the short story that he's re- or the, the the manuscript that he's reading from Wydell. Um, and he reads it when he's in that train or in that truck or what? It's on a train. Yeah, he when he's in that train, he's in the back of that kind of prefab he house. Died in Hamden, Thornton Wilder. Good for you, hey, Thornton Wilder. Born in Madison, Wisconsin. But. Oh yeah, but he, he ended his life here. That's fine. Um, Where all things go to die, yeah. Southern Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it sometimes. Um, you are, aren't a hundred percent sure what is, and you don't know with who the narrator is yet. We haven't been confronted with the the. You piece the, it together, the, but we like, haven't. Yeah. Been, we haven't been. Con- you haven't even. Clo- By yeah, the time yeah. he reads the manuscript, we haven't been confronted with the bar yet. Mm. So we don't know that there's like, the narrator is related to the bar somehow. You know what I mean? We don't know that yet. We just know that there's a narrator's voice and he's narrating this situation, but he's also narrating the, but he's not narrating the manuscript, which gives you the impression that, the manuscript is. Somehow the narration, you know what I mean? There's like this uber meta quality to it. Um, that's not to say that that's the the exact same case in Our Town, but the narrator in Our Town has kind of the same qualities that the narrator in this does. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where the narrator in this knows way more than he's letting on initially, and that he... Um, Behind the narration, behind whatever the, whatever the text is, there's something else. And I've always perceived that something else to be the, the viewer. You know what I mean? Where, or in this case, the reader of the text. Um, in a play, it's the viewer of the play. In, this, in the movie, it's, the, it's in this context that I assume it is, it's the reader of the text. Um, or even the viewer of the film. But like the, from a metal level. the beauty of the of that relationship, which is not real, I just you know conceived of it, is that both things are about kind of like you said, inevitable endings. Like this is you know, uh, our town ends in a in a graveyard, or one of the last scenes is in a graveyard. This scene doesn't. This doesn't end in a graveyard, but it ends with a mine I mean, exploding. It might, a as, boat. it might as well end in a graveyard. Yeah, exactly. Like it ends in a wine bar with the Luxembourgian, as we've now established, uh, secret police force kind of storming Paris and and our, our character hoping that that storming force is the Very woman good. that he's been pining for. Um, I, I mean, I, I think this movie is is great. It didn't have the same visceral effect um, on me that it had on you, but it, I think I think it's a I think it's an exceptional film. Well, I think it's, just, it's, a, it's a classicist piece of. And yeah. when I was watching it, I was like, "This fits into Mario's." Did you like, watch aesthetic? This, did you watch this movie going like Mario's going to love this? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. all the, the I mean, specifically in relationship to Brazil too, like where it hits all these noir beats but subverts them, and I was like, "Subverted noir." Mario's all in on subverted noir. Um, but I think it's, I mean, it's magnificently acted. Um, well, let's talk about subverted noir really quick. Yeah. Um, what's going to go down? Like, if we did top 20 scenes of the, of the century so far, the scene um, between George and I do not remember her character's name. The one with the dogs? The one with the dogs. Um, Diane Weist 30 years ago. <coughs> yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the complete subversion of kind of her being not the not a femme fatale, but kind of like the the secondary woman character who kind of comes yeah. in, leads the the main kind of like. And this is this is one hundred percent noir. Like yeah, this, yeah, this yeah. Follows the, the stroke, but all in the, the daytime. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, like instead of her just kind of being a a wisp or a spirit that kind of flows in and out as an narrator is necessary, she does at first, and then you know. Instead of just disappearing when she gives some information, she disappears and he looks and he sees a cigarette there. He looks around, she's not there anymore. And all of a sudden he hears screams and he looked down and just she's killed herself. And like that is like the subversion of just like all these necessary tropes of just like this is a fantastical story that's elevated beyond like a real world and like this is she had a, a nice moment, and she was just like, I'm never going to have this again. Well, after she told him, I don't want to talk. I just want to eat. Yeah. I just want to n- not eat alone. Yeah. Which you don't tell the detective in a norm film. He tells you something. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it reminds me of this – is, this is a weird thing to compare it to. It reminds me of an old Superman comic story uh, where Superman's, like, talking to a jumper. That's awesome. Um, and – so, like, the entire story is, like, she's about ready to jump. She's lost her mother. Everything's, like, she doesn't see the reality in the world. She thinks everything's worthless and doesn't make any sense. Superman goes up, and she's like, you're just going to grab me when I jump. And Superman's like, if you jump, I'm going to let you fall. Like, like she asks her to promise him, like, if I jump, you will let me die. And Superman says yes. And she's just like, you know, I just want to see her and think. And he's like, I have forever. And shows day through night. Um, and, you know, she eventually says, like, the world doesn't make sense, and he says, like, the world doesn't make sense to me, and it's just back and forth, and then he eventually, you know, says, like, if you feel as though you're never going to have another good day, jump. Like, Superman says to her, if you're never going to have, if you feel in your heart of hearts you're never going to have another good day after this moment, jump. What year is this? I don't, I don't know what year. I think it's like a late 70s, early 80s. Awesome. And But if you have the chance of a good day, you know, like, stay, come down with me, we'll talk about it. And she, you know, she eventually, like, says, obviously Superman, Superman, so she says there's going to be another good day. And I thought of that moment, like, that moment in this when she jumps, because there's not a fucking good day. Yeah. And this is, like, the overhanging Shit. sense of absolute dread in this. Yeah. Because she jumps because, like, she's comfortable in this moment, but there's no hope on the other end. And the reason that that is, is boiled down for me, and I typically hate throwing in like a nice pop culture song in the end, but fucking playing Road to Nowhere mm. by Talking Heads in the end fucking like hammered everything home. Because no matter what path you take, these people take. In the end, it leads to nothing. Well, that's, I mean, in, I would ask the question. That, that, song, that ending song, too, is like one of the... There hasn't been another. There hasn't been has perfect of a song to end a film since Edge of Tomorrow. Well, because it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Because it's not like they were teasing, you know, Talking Head songs. No, it's like moving. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, the score Which is, is my favorite Talking Head song. The score is very. <coughs> it's reserved. Hans classicist. Yeah. Classicist. You know, like, for like a noir film, and it plays. It doesn't. Well, do talking like, talking I earlier suppose. from the Brazil conversation, it reminds me of like the scores from like a Richard Iotti film, like Submarine or. Uh, the double. It's just it's it's really mm. calm and like undercurrent and yeah. just kind of conveys 
not necessarily the emotion they film, but it conveys more what you're seeing. It's it's subservient to the imagery. Yeah. Um, it was a very good, I mean. It fucking, it ruined me. Yeah, Christian Petzold. Which, uh, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I have to, uh, his Phoenix is on Criterion Collection. And apparently it's the movie of his that is, like, the one. Like, Which over all the movies. Because of his ability to trust Franz or Roganowski, who fucking destroys this movie. Oh, God. Like, we're talking fantastic. about Adam Driver and Marriage Story. And Adam Driver and Marriage Story is really good. But the scene where Paula Beer and Franz Roganowski are in the taxi in the back seat and just get that single cut. While she's just talking about her husband being there. And, you know, she's going to be so happy. And just he's not saying a goddamn thing. But he is conveying everything you think every, everything the story's led you to in just like a thousand a thousand words or well, s- just spewing out at you in the face he's making and it's for me it's the first <coughs> scene he has with the US consul mm-hmm. when they're talk you know when he's talking when he has to answer questions about his writing and he has to answer questions about like what hell? he would what he would do no that's the no, second time no, the second what time. he would do in Mexico, like why? Why does he want to go to Mexico? What's he going to do? And he's going to practice the trade. He's going to be a TV repair technician. Which is that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he talks about like why he doesn't want to write, like about his experiences. It's it's amazing. Like in you know the the script there is amazing, and it's you know it should be recognized. And but the performance of that idea is like spellbinding. You know what I mean? Like you, what he has gone through and why he's not gonna he's gonna try his best not to carry it with him in whatever the next version of his life is you know what I mean um I don't know it's which was then perfectly framed with that second conversation where he talks about waiting in line for hell which is he's told you're in hell like this is which is the castle like Kafka's the castle times a million yeah you know like no matter what it's done. They're yeah. done. Um, yeah, it's kind of a fascinating movie. And it's it's on a lot of people's lists, but I feel like it's not... It came out very early in the year. Yeah, it was so eligible, I, like, I think, for last year's Oscar. I think yes. it was, like, Germany's pick for last year, I think. Yes, I think so, too. Um, but it got released here this year. Yeah, like February. Um, did it make it to Criterion at all? Do you know? Do if you it remember? did, it just did not yeah. pop on my radar. I don't know. Um, I mean... We talked about two really difficult movies, like like worthwhile like views, but not not easy. Like if you're just looking for a night in, like just with a fun time watching a flick, like these are not the movies. You know what I mean? Um, we have stick with a, Marriage Story. Stick with Marriage Story. <laughs> there is a level deeper than this, though. That is just more difficult and more like. If this is if this is you have committed suicide and have become a tree and are a bleeding tree, this is now you are head in the ground, frozen in ice, feet in the air, being lit on fire. That's where we're going, people. You're not necessarily being chewed up by the devil. Yeah, no. that's probably Tom Hopper's cats. But this is the the next level. Yeah, and we will talk about the next level of hell right after this break.
Oh, man. That, that music. Bringing it back. Whenever, that music is just that. Whenever you're ready. It does not fit this. Does it? It fits it perfectly. Does it? It's the same level of film, yeah. What are we doing, Tom? What are we doing in this podcast? What are you doing? What are we doing? I would just, so, I would just watch this movie if you didn't. <coughs> We've been uh, talking about Netflix a lot lately. And Netflix, for the past um, four weeks, has been spending... And I tweeted this, actually. I tried to, I've been trying to be more active on Twitter. You have. You've been good, yeah. I actually got a like for this recent tweet. They have spent, in the past four weeks, $400 million dollars. On original productions, and I didn't think about Two Popes. I don't know how much Two Popes was caught, like probably ten million or so. Fernando Miguel doesn't need a lot of money. No, but whatever the apparatus they use to keep Anthony Hopkins upright is probably a lot. <laughs> just, just Jonathan Price. Just come cupping, on, man. Cup in the butt. Do Jonathan it. Jonathan Price, cup in the butt. <laughs> just, just stand. That's the reason why he's getting all the. That's the reason. That's the unfortunate reason why he's angry. He's not getting best actor talk. Yeah, he was cupping the butt. Oh god, I had to carry Anthony Hopkins around this whole time. But over the past four weeks, I I guess in response to maybe the rise that is Disney Plus. Yeah, I would assume maybe because uh, it didn't happen last year. I mean, we got Roma last year, but like this is fucking this is beyond the pale. Yeah, um, Netflix has gone crazy. Uh, restarted out with Irishman, the one hundred and sixty million dollar. Monstrosity. Um, that is her. Robert De Niro's face. Yeah, that is Robert De Niro's performance. Man, that movie's so good if Robert De Niro was already dead by the time that movie came out. No, Actually, no, I'm not going to say that. That's not true because he's good as an old guy. Mm-hmm. The last half hour is pretty good. It's so, the really weird. Did I tell you? I was, first half hour. So that's... I was talking really quickly about Irishman. I was, I was, I was at Old Trinity. Good, good bar downtown. Okay. Oh, oh, sure, Burned sure. down and came back. Good. With good a vengeance. Dempsey's is coming back next year. Delaney's. Delaney's, yeah, whatever. Fuck it. Uh, this is what beer and bourbon get you. Um, and he said, you know, you could just have you had Bobby Cavanaugh in that film. Why not just have Bobby Cannavale. Cannavale. It's very Italian. This is, yeah. This is <laughs> going apart at the seams. <laughs> Do you think Bobby Cavanaugh... Can, can, do you think he plays a better younger Robert De Niro than young Robert De Niro? No, I don't think he. I don't think he's got that in him. I think I agree. I, I agree. think he's perfect doing the thing that he's doing. He's an Ant Man, right? He's the guy from Ant Man. Yeah, he's a the stepdad. He's great in Ant Man. Him and Judy. Him and Judy like Greer make a good him. pair. Well, I mean, the one person. <laughs> well, Judy Greer's the person got a lot. Got a lot more. The person that's part. missing from the Irishman is Judy Greer. I mean, she fits in perfectly with this aesthetic. You know it's not missing from Irishman? Lorraine Bracco. I'm glad she's not there. Yes, yeah. Fine. Mario, move on with your life. But so they spent $160 million on The Irishman. They spent $16 million on The Marriage Story. Upcoming this weekend is Two Popes. They spent some amount of money on that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And you got The Witcher series, which has a person who loved Witcher 3 I'm kind of excited for. I'm glad that uh, Superman... Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill... All I could think about was uh, the last Superman. He kept the mustache yeah. from Mission Impossible. Uh, that's going to be, I, I think, sixty to a hundred million dollar t- television Jesus series. Christ! Well, Netflix didn't feel that was good enough. You know? No way. 
They got the video game audience. They got the angry old Italian audience. <laughs> they got the pretentious East Coast, West Coast audience. And they got the Jonathan Price audience. But they needed something else. Yeah. They needed... Who, yeah, I, I was going to say, how are you defining this audience? audience redefine this as? Because it's an audience that's... A been melting hard. pot. Like, this is, the, this is the melting pot of cinema, is it not? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. This is the American idealist version of movies. I mean, movies. We, are, we are recording this episode 24 hours after Shit for Brains got impeached. This is the melting pot, though. This would have, this would have drug one of the old repugs over. I've, this, is, this is the most... Republican movies since Dragged Across Concrete. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. And this movie is the $150 million behemoth that is Michael Bay's Six Underground. We take a box, and into that box, we place all the horrors of the world. And we close the box and pretend it doesn't exist. Only some of us, we've lost our ability to pretend. We've been looking for a special operator like you for a while. Who are you? We do the dirty work, others can't. Here's the fun part. Now on, you're dead. It's all erased. No more criminal records, no more getting arrested just for being naked or just usual stuff, you know, being naked, getting drunk, casual stuff. When hope and love has been lost, and you fall to the ground. Is this from the movie? You must find a way. When the darkness descends... Wait, what is this? And you're told it's the end. It's the description of the movie, Tom. You must find a way. I feel like this is a lyric to a song. When God decides to look the other way, and a clown takes the throne, we must find a way. Phase three, firing squad. Against all the odds, you will find a way. Dig down. Dig down by Muse features heavily, prominently in the beginning of Six Underground. Um, A film about people just faking their deaths, including billionaire Ryan Reynolds. Can a billionaire fake his death? Uh, no, 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 sure. no, 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 sure. no, 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 we can't ever, one of the caveats of this review, we can't express anything about plausibility. No, that's, that's fair. So I'm sorry. They, to be fair about that, this movie addresses the plausibility of a billionaire committing suicide. When Ryan Reynolds, one, says, oh, you think that's implausible? How many billionaires do you know? Well... If a billionaire looked like Ryan Reynolds and had invented the cell you know, phone, the cell phone, basically the technology by which lithium batteries could exist, and looked like Ryan Reynolds and did stunts like Ryan Reynolds and looked like Ryan Reynolds and was married to Blake Lively, to Blake Lively, I want to say Brie Larson, to married to Blake Lively and was Ryan Reynolds. Oh, poor Brie Larson. You would know that billionaire. Yeah, I know Shadid Khan. Yeah, me too. He has like $3 billion. 
and owns a couple teams and also all wrestling which if you're haven't if you're a wrestling fan and don't watch and only watch WWE watch all Elite wrestling instead because it's struggling okay move on. Instead. move on but you would 100% know this billionaire this movie makes a point of saying you would not know that he died doing a stunt plane trick sponsored but, by Red Bull yeah but you would know yeah you would know that billionaire everywhere and if you didn't people in his line of work would know him but you know what? In this movie, that is the nobody least of our knows concerns. Him. That's fine. I'm okay with just pretending that this world. You know what? He did some Clark Kent esque changes to his muscularity, and has faked his death, and nobody sees him anymore. My favorite part about this movie is that there is a 100 <coughs> percent for whatever reason a limit placed on what people that make a certain amount of money and have a certain amount of power can know about technology. So they will only – the people that work for that oligarch in Turkestan only know about people that like, are trafficking in normal society. They can't know about anybody that traffics below normal society. They just can't. If social security numbers and, and photos aren't involved, they can't know about them. Impossible. It is impossible. Well, that's, that's all part of the deep state. Gotta be, yeah. Speaking of deep state, our billionaire needs a couple assistants. He needs five, five assistants. Because he's going to be killing eight or nine major characters throughout the series of films. Yep. We're only going to kill one in this first one, which blew my mind. I really thought we were going to go through three of them. I thought five of them were the four generals. Yeah. I, like, when they, saw, they showed nine, I was like, we are going to kill like, <laughs> we're going to really quickly kill one. The second one's going to be something. We're going to think he's the leader. He's not going to be. And the third one will actually be the leader. No. We're just... Mario... Netflix thinks we're going to do nine of these movies. Mario, what's your favorite... There's two favorite parts of this movie. No, there's three favorite parts of this movie. One of them is the analogy of the four generals with the red soda cups at the restaurant. My favorite is the backstory of five. My, My favorite is... Opening 20-minute car chase scene featuring a Dave Franco who gets in his head and his neck impaled by a forklift. Well, I'm sorry. The magician, Dave Franco? <laughs> who? So the best thing no, no, about no, no, no. this. I just want to finish. Let me just finish real quick. The thing I wrote about that is they spend 20 minutes at a car chase where a main character who you've just spent 20 minutes with dies to accomplish literally nothing. Except they got that guy's eyeball. And they know where the four generals are going to be. But I don't see how that eyeball helps them find where the four generals are going to be. Because I thought they found out later through a different means where the four generals were going to be. Well, that's the interesting thing about Six Underground. Six Underground really doesn't care about continuity. Oh, you mean when Ryan Reynolds takes his shirt off two times and in between he takes his tie off? Um, Before he has sex. Oh, yeah, that's true. Also, you know, Dave Franco's uh, sex character has a hat on. Loses his hat. Has his hat on. Loses his hat. Or, you know, a very uh, gratuitous scene of Camille, Tooze, Melaine Neurance, blood squirting in the face of 
the most well-developed three-dimensional character in the history of film, Amelia <laughs> Five's face, the doctor, um, immediately cutting to a, a medium shot from the front windshield where her face is completely devoid of any blood, cutting back to her face with a streak of blood, cutting back, this the streak of blood, cutting back to her face, the blood's in a different location, cutting back. Yeah, no, it's it not, but not necessarily that. The more important part of continuity I love is the word important here. Is the fact that I watched this. You've met my friend Dan. Yeah. My, my good old lawyer friend Dan. Me and him like to meet up on sporadic weekends, drink a, a decent amount of bourbon, and a vibe in some film. And, you know, he's, he's, re- he's very much now in a committed relationship. And so, like, this, we have sporadic weekends now. And I was like, this weekend was open. I was like, we're going to watch Six Underground. And so we sat down. We built this up. We watched it. And there is a scene a little bit towards the end of the first act where uh, the where one, Ryan Reynolds, um, sees a gas attack on a, on a village, on yeah. a city. Both of us were pretty sober at this point and rethought all this had taken place after the first 20 minutes. It wasn't until a good 15 minutes after that fact that we realized that was the reason one Ryan Reynolds' character even started his mission. Yeah, because it's ex- it's not in any way clear that it's narratively before anything happened. No, uh, so this, this takes place after, you know, Dave Franco 6 has died. He's recruited uh, Corey Hawkins 7. Then that scene, I think, immediately follows where he goes into the city um, where the gas attack happens. And he's like, gets the kids and the whatnot. Well, it says Turkestan, right? <laughs> yeah. And you know that they're chasing the Turkestanian leader. So it naturally followed that now that he has a new six, he would go to Turkestan to start the mission. But no, without any sort of delineation, we go back in time. Yeah. Possibly years. It's impossible to know. To see why one has taken over this mantle of having to, you know, avenge the world or purify the world of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it took me a good 20 minutes to realize that's what's happening. I'm going to be very honest with you. And I feel comfortable with our listeners. This movie feels judging like... Judging me. Until you said that, I didn't know that was the case. Really? I had no idea. Can I... Because there's nothing that, like... <laughs> like you said, delineates like we're going back in time, folks. Can I say something worse? Sure. I want you to take the chime stamp on this because, in a similar way, I've not been in a lot of fights in my life. But I imagine if I got punched in the face several times mm-hmm. and was then asked to put together a jigsaw puzzle, the result of that jigsaw puzzle that I put together would be this film. Yeah. I sat there for several moments in that scene immediately following like the gas attack on Turkestan that apparently preceded all of this where he's sitting at the opera one. Why is he at the opera? I, I don't know. Um, and the bartender, like the hot bartender is there. I really thought that was the doctor. Yeah, I did too. And I was it's, like, why is he pretending the that they don't know each other? Yeah. It's not the doctor, and he hasn't even met the doctor yet. Because, because me, and, yeah. me and my friend Dan had a bet that of who he was going to hook up with, Ryan Reynolds. Because he said he was going to hook up with Marlene Ron. I was like, no, he's going to hook up with the doctor. We were both wrong, but I was, guess I was closer. Because 
Michael Bay chose an actress who looked exactly like the Doctor. My question... By the way, Five, the Doctor. Yep. Every character gets a backstory. I mean, to be fair, Melaine Laurent gets 20 seconds. Every other character gets an extensive backstory. Uh Every, you know, Lorraine Laurent, because she has a vagina, only gets 20 seconds. Um, Adria Arjano, Arjana, playing Amelie, Doctor of the Five, um, because she's a lesser known actress and also has a vagina, gets no backstory. No backstory. And her character is the Doctor. She shows the fact that she's a Doctor Exactly once in this movie. My favorite thing about her in this movie once is that every time they cut to her when they're trying to extract the brother from the building, I said, "Who is that?" And I was like, "Wait, what? Why is this? she just walking around with like the lobby? Why doesn't she do something?" Do you remember when? Like, neither of us remember the Spanish flu of the 1920s and teens. But do you feel like this would be the sort of you know, hallucinations you would have while in the midst of a Spanish flu? I imagine probably, yes. I would imagine someone running straight down a building only in sneakers. Why is he on? No, I want to say something Why is he on top of that building? The question is this, Mario. He's a thief and obviously... He's a Skywalker. Some kind of parkour champion. He's supposed oh. to be special, right? Michael Bay saw District B-13 and fucking jacked off on top of that French DVD. He's supposed Michael to... Michael Bay jizzes all over French parkour right now. He's supposed to be special, this guy, right? This British parkour master. Special. Which, by the way, Ben Hardy, like, fucking digs deep. Like, I Ben just, Hardy's I really trying in this. confirm what I'm saying. He's supposed to be special, right? Oh. I mean, according to one, he is special. Those guys that are not parkour masters, that weren't even supposed to be in the building when they're extracting the brother, are right behind him. Oh, they are. They literally jump from thing to thing in the exact same manner he does. Including that Jerry Lawler-looking motherfucker. That guy with the the legend one. That guy was great. I I I was really upset when that guy wasn't like the... That movie fucked up with not having him be like the guy on the boat in the end. Yeah. Like, yeah. make the other, make the, for one thing, the big muscular guy, I wouldn't believe could parkour the fuck out of things. The blonde guy, I can fucking buy that. I could buy that guy could parkour things. But if that guy's we'll supposed to. We'll get to that last act. If that I fucking love that last so act. so special, how is it that everybody else that's not special can do the exact same things that he could do? If that's the case, why isn't one getting a whole army of parkour guys? Why only six guys? Just get ten parkour guys and pay them more than, you know, the oligarch, the Turkestanian oligarch is paying. Well, I don't know if you know this, but Billy is really essential for this film because he has to be in a place where he's going to die three to four times. So that he can constantly be motivation for the rest of the team to come back and save him. Yeah. Yeah, he has to be. You have to save him. But one says you don't have to save him. You just got to go. Yeah, speaking of which. You just got to leave him behind. (laughs) So this is the one thing I find. The one thing I find distressing about this movie, and I'm going to be honest. Just one? I'm going to say this right now. I like this movie. Because it's a fucking trip. This movie is a fucking nightmare. 
of an experience has a person who believes he's good at like film criticism. This movie is a nightmare in it's, terms of like I like in terms of like living up to what a film should be. This movie shits over everything. Here's what I would say: you gave me your bottom five, the worst movies you've seen this year, and you put them on a list. I would put this movie in my bottom five, but it would be number five. I couldn't you know put what I mean? this, yeah. I couldn't put this movie in my bottom five because I fucking had the time of my life. But that's watching what, I think. There are four movies ahead of this, which I hated myself for watching. There was moments in this movie where I said, like, this movie is Michael Bay's clearly insane, right? But that I was kind of, like, enjoying the insanity. Well, you're a sober while watching this, right? Yeah. But while, while Dave Franco in the 20-minute opening car chasing is driving through a museum... For literally no reason. Oh, because the helicopter, for some reason, can't see them in like the courtyard where they're in for 10 seconds. And then they go back out into the street where there's a helicopter. I was just like, yeah, what the hell? What the, By <laughs> what the, the way, hell is this? The great thing about that opening 20 minutes, beyond the fact that destroy priceless works of art, without regard, who cares? The thing I love about that opening 20 minutes is they fucking kill Innocent people. Hundreds of innocent people. No, not even hundreds, but like beyond like the collateral damage, a person steps in front of the car and they make a joke about hitting that person at 70 to 80 miles per hour. And that person goes flying over and like Dave Franco makes a joke of like, I had a right away. He makes a joke about an innocent person being murdered by their driver. And the best part about that, it's for no reason. Yeah, there's nothing about it. Like, you could have made that entire... Like, it's followed up by a scene where, like, they do a spin around a... I don't fucking know what fountain it is. It doesn't matter. With the baby? Um, yeah, you have a baby and a bunch of people voting it. And, like, you could have shot that scene to show, like, oh, they're reckless. But, like, they care about, like, not killing the innocents. But, like, no. Michael Bay was like, you know what? No, they fucking... They will run over... Anybody. Objectively, whatever you want to say aside, this movie is fucking terrible. But, I don't know. It's just so goofy. It's a fucking ride. It's just, it's so fucking goofy. There's a thing we used to, people used to make fun of like stuff like The Rock for being good. Like, you know, old Michael Bay movies, we go, oh, that's really goofy. You like all these Transformers movies, they're super fucking goofy. This is the goofiest shit I've ever seen in my life. This was this was a movie where I suddenly realized, like, yeah, I'm not a big drug guy because I don't want to think that that's smart. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know what? Like, maybe this wasn't a drug-created trip. I'm not going to make that accusation right now. Well, what's the... I mean, the drug is... is, is oh, God, who is knows? Is what? Like, Ayn Rand books? I don't know. Like, <laughs> what? Well, this is what this is a Paul uh, Wernick and, and Rees script. So, like, they are the guys that did Deadpool, and they did, I think, um, they did Zombieland. Well, all the Deadpool's the quipping is here. Yeah, to a degree. Sometimes though, that quipping feels so like weird and forced and bad. Like, there's some there's some quips that work. Like the the noodle, uh, the Hong Kong noodle scene. Like, yeah. even though that scene fucking shouldn't be there. Because it is immediately followed by them back on the plane. By the way, great, great sequence. Them flying out 
Mongolian desert. Like it, you get a title card of Mongolian desert. Them talking on the plane. Then they're in Hong Kong. It's like you don't have to tell us they're in the Mongolian desert. We know they're probably flying to Hong Kong, Michael Bay. Yeah. Just show them Just in put the plane. Them in Hong Kong. Just show them in the plane and then put them in Hong Kong. And we'll probably and us as like viewers will be like, oh, that previous sequence of them in the plane was probably them on the way to Hong Kong. But like you get that one shot of like them talking to like like in a noodle scene and then all of a sudden they're back at the hotel like preparing for it. And that they're only at that noodle scene for that joke. That joke was funny. It's like Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. As much as like I know, I I don't I think you hate Ryan Reynolds. I'm making this assumption now. No, I don't mind him. No, oh. I just that guy. I don't, that guy fucking I knows. happen to not like any movies that he's in. But that guy knows the reason he's in the movies he's in, and the reason the movies he's in now are successful is because the guy knows how to charismatically deliver good lines. Mm-hmm. And that's like, there's a reason two guys, the girl in the pizza place, is still a, movie, a show I love because like they gave him the shit to work with. Well, he's um, and like that is the one point where I was like, "Oh, this scene's fucking hilarious." Yeah, he can do this stuff. I think the re- I'm going to be honest with you. The only reason I find this movie even in the least bit acceptable is because Ryan Reynolds is clearly aware of what is happening around him. Yeah, you know what I mean. He plays it like this is fucking stupid. I'm just doing this. A little it's more crazy. Melaine Laurent is too. She takes. She seems to be taking it like a little more seriously, but perhaps that's just like the accent and like the way she carries but herself it's normally. So like, I think like Malayne Laurent's doing the same thing because she's playing like that. Now you see me character, that shitty really magic movie, that mm-hmm. Jesse Eisenberg magic movie, up to like a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel bad for Ben Hardy because I think Ben Hardy like thought this was something that people would like chew on. I don't know. Parkour is pretty, it's like, 15 years ago. And, like, I guess Manuel Garcia Rufio is, like, kind of, like, having fun. Like, I, I think some of these people are kind of having fun with it. I think he's having fun with it. I don't think he's trying anything hard. But too. I actually think his character, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually didn't know what was going on. And so all of his just, like, wait, what is that? Was just, like, well, I, no one told me. Like, you just said action, and I'm just <laughs> trying what, to what? respond to whatever someone is saying to me. I don't know. And Adrian Chato was just happy to be getting paid that day for the five days she was on screen. Oh my god, it's it's it's, but it's pretty rough. So one thing, <laughs> speaking of expectations about films, uh-huh. so I saw this movie seeing the cast list beforehand, and I saw that Seven was going to be played by Corey Hawkins. You know, uh, who I liked as Dre in like. Um, Straight off Compton, mm-hmm. uh, and I actually liked that like one shitty ass season of Twenty Four he did. But for some reason, much. when I read him in the cast listing, I saw him as Corey Stahl. Oh, and so I sat there for a second. I he popped up, and I was like, "Oh, Corey Hawkins." I was like, "Oh, he's gonna die soon." <laughs> I just kept because I saw that Seven was played by Corey Hawkins, but my mind read it as Corey Stahl, mm-hmm. and I just kept waiting for him to die. And then about like an hour into it, I was like. Corey Hawkins. Not Corey Stahl, yeah. But then I wondered, what would Six Underground be like with Corey Stahl? Imagine Corey Stahl. Imagine Corey Stahl. Like, the impetus of Netflix. Right? I mean, let's look at it this way. House of Cards is like the match that lights the fire of Netflix original programming. 
Orange is, is the new black and House of Cards. No, no. House of Cards is predates Orange oh, is, is the it? new black. Okay. Yeah. You know, we get we get you know whatever his name was. Uh who was who was the lead actor on that? Uh Kevin Pollock. Kevin Spoosy. Kevin, Kevin Spachi. Something yeah, like I can't that. remember. Kevin something. And Robin Wright Penn. And but then Corey Stahl was like the like the 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 son of a bitch who like lit the fire underneath that. Now imagine Corey Stahl is now in this movie. Now like Netflix has fucking so lost like a its Netflix mind. Now that Netflix thing? now that Netflix is able to like throw hundreds of millions of dollars just at a wall because they're like out of their mind on cocaine and they know that people will rent Netflix. Do we think this how do we think that movie changes? Because Six Underground, to me, ultimately, as much as I enjoyed it, exists as a social experiment. Remember? A social experiment in the sense of insanity. Six Underground is a time capsule into our modern world. Here's the thing. In 30 years, we're going to look at this movie and be like, holy shit, that's what 2019 was. I actually don't think that's true. I think your first point about insanity is a better point where I don't think this is reflective of anything that's happening in the culture at all. Like, I mean, I think it is loosely. This feels like the most night early nineties movie that I've seen in like since the early nineties. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah. It's just fucking crazy. This reminds me of like, this is like Bad Boys 2 on crack, though. No, because Bad Boys 2, people <clears throat> didn't explode in half. Bad Boys 2 I mean, he, they, features listen, bloated bodies being run over by cars and the yep, heads exploding off the bodies. But not innocent nobodies. I mean, granted, they drove that Hummer. It's a Hummer, right? Mm-hmm. Down a mountain full of houses, which is still one of the great scenes ever in the history of film. I have to imagine there was thousands of people that were dead in that movie. This movie says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to bring a camera into all those houses and watch all those bodies explode. But is that not a picture of the insanity of modern day? In 2003, like we're, we're voting on the Iraq war. You know, we're like, that is like the impetus of insanity in American Western geopolitical ideas you know voting on the war in iraq that used to be the kind of like when the culture used to say the words yellow cake every day yeah like multiple times and we were just like they got the yellow cake but that was the dividing line versus like a hawk and kind of an insane person and a person who's like saying like let's think about this for a moment i don't think this is reflective of a culture i think this is reflective of michael bay thinking that this movie is reflective of a culture so I think well, apparently me and Michael Bay are on the on the same fucking I think, pulse. It's the thing. I think dragged something like dragged across concrete, or and I just there was an article that I didn't read about like these types of movies. The same studio that released uh, I saw Sinist, a tweet. Sinist, I saw Sinist, a Sinistate. I saw a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it's that type Sin- of what's Sinistate? What's... It's the the production company that released. Dragon Cross Concrete okay. and um, Riot, uh, Cell Block Brawl 99. Brawl and Cell Block 99. 99. Um, I think that's closer to 
being representative of the culture than this is. I think this but is it's... representative of a one guy's vision of what he wishes the culture still was. But is this more? I feel like this is more representative of like encapsulating like the tautness and the. I the thing I can't holding the coal. I'm, I can't agree over with, the fire in the hand. I, the only way I can agree with that we statement, are way diving deeper into Six Underground this, than anyone ever has. This movie is fucking crazy. Yeah. It's crazy, but not like just kind of like holy shit. Like that was I can't believe that happened. <laughs> this movie is insane. It's made so by it, an, an insane person. What blows my mind in this movie, right? Is not where, an untalented person, just an insane one. No, because he definitely has talent. He knows what he's doing. That guy ran down a building in fucking sneakers. Like it looked like he was running down a building in just his sneakers. What blows what what really made me think about this movie, and it's like the scene of, of extraordinary gore in the film, the one they keep talking about, is the head explosion scene. Mm-hmm. The uh, scene where Corey Hawkins seven puts the flashbang in the guy's mouth, throws him over the other side, and the head explodes. And like the body falls down, and you see like the fucking jigsaw level, you know, demogorgon gore. And he says, It's just a flashbang. You know, he just is like shocked. He was just like, it was just a flashbang. Uh-huh. And that struck me. I don't know why that struck me. Like existentially? Yeah. But it struck me because it's just like I know it's played off as a joke, but it's like Well the whole it's all played <sighs> off as a joke. But you sit there and go like, holy shit. Like, that fucking guy, who's just, like, a security guy for some faceless dictator. Like, those security guys in the end are not bad people. They're just dudes who are just being paid to do a job who are slightly bad. Well, That guy's head fucking explodes. That was the weird thing about... And he, like, this this moral center of this movie says, it was just a flashbang. That was, I mean, the one... But that struck me as, like, it's just, like, that struck me as the cult, like... Am I reading too much no, in the no, Six no, Underground? No, 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 because like, this movie just struck me as like, it's just this. I'm just, you yeah. know. No, the extraction scene was a little bit like that for me. And if I was a little bit more invested in it, I would have maybe felt differently, like a little more strongly about it. But in a different movie, like The Dark Knight, where, or, no, The Dark Knight, yeah, where he's not killing anybody. You know what I mean? He goes up, up and up and up and up to meet the Joker but he purposely doesn't kill anybody because he doesn't know who anybody is. In this movie, while <coughs> Ryan Reynolds is just walking around quipping the whole time, they're just picking people off. Like, the only way to get this guy out is to literally kill everybody. Well, like, look at not the- just incapacitate them, not just kind of, like, sneak around them. All they can do is fucking kill them. Well, like, the two scenes, like, struck B are the scene, like, where, like, Valerie Laurent and... Um- Javier are kind of like in that like one like office meeting room. They kill like all the security people. They're like, why? And then later on in the uh, like when they're doing the magnet scene in the kitchen, and then they make like the chefs also bad guys because like chefs are being impaled by knives. Yeah. Like you're like, but they might just be fucking chefs. Well, you know, I mean, the most morally repugnant scene for me was when they break into the general's. They break into the general's hotel room, and they kill all. Oh, they kill everybody. At least they didn't finish in you. Yeah. And. That's disgusting. Not just like from like a fluids perspective, but just like like from a rape. A, that comes from a rape, a rape perspective. perspective from yeah. a from a humanity perspective, like that's fucking gross. But I feel like Michael she, Bay made that movie, and he was just like, "Fuck you, I'm doing it. I don't care. 
you guys are all a bunch of snowflakes. And I'm reacting specifically to being at a Christmas party on Saturday where a family member said that people that were pro, that were sad that JFK was killed were snowflakes. And that he, I, I can't talk, I can't talk about it. I can't talk. <laughs> it's, people will be able to tell who I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, people that were sad that JFK were killed were snowflakes. Um, and then I watched this movie where Michael Bay 100% agrees with that. Because if he was going to do it, he would have just killed everybody. He wouldn't have just killed JFK. He would have killed the whole motorcade. He would have got the governor. He would have got the governor. So, what do we think about this? We let our, our good friend, the white author, write another screenplay. Give it to Michael Bay. Give, have oh, you Netflix, don't think they're talking right now? Have Netflix give him oh, $200 million this time. I would be, what, I, a, what did a Brett Easton Ellis six underground sequel look like? I'm going to be very honest with you. I would be happy for Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> I mean, he is, he is very confused at this point. Or maybe he would argue that he's not confused and I'm confused or whatever. But he is still like a meaningful film critic to me. Um in the same way that the super contrarian now Richard Brody is like a very meaningful film critic to me. Armand White too. Well, not a big a dick. I think, Richard Brody's I mean, not Armand White. But. No, he's one hundred percent not Armand White. But Armand White's a good writer, and I, you know, I look at Armand White and see what he's got to say, and it's most of the time wrong, but you know, it's still interesting. Um, but that is a that is a team up, a cinematic team up. If if Brett Easton, if I found out that Brett Easton Ellis wrote the sequel to this movie, I would not be shocked. I would not be shocked at all. And I guarantee would you... Would you be excited? He, yeah. Because I guarantee you it would be much more violent. It would be much more sexual. It would be much more everything. There would be less cars doing flips and just dissolving in half. Being ripped in half. No, no, no. Parts. Being ripped in half, like, suggests a kind of, like, a force. These cars just, like, drift <laughs> apart. Like, the half of them... Half of these cars, the middle part just disappeared when Thanos snapped his fingers. You know what I mean? <laughs> but the other parts live. The other parts exist, just this middle part doesn't exist anymore. That's what happens all the time in this movie. And there's a lot of things with steel pipes and things falling on other cars. Well, there's that entire part where the steel pipes impale a bunch of people. But then later, involving the same guy... More steel pipes fall from a roof and, like, kill a whole police force in Hong oh, Kong. Well. But they don't kill him. <laughs> they never kill him. The sequel should just be about Ben Hardy's, like, the second coming of Christ. That'd be a good sequel. I'm going to be honest with you. It would just it, That's what it would be. I mean, Michael Bay is totally capable of making that movie. Like, The Passion of the Christ 2? Like, just give it to Michael Bay instead of... Mel Gibson. I wouldn't be surprised if Michael Bay is a producer on that movie. Which is actually getting made. <laughs> yeah. They keep saying that for a while. If you want to send us your screenplay for The Passion of the Christ 2. Oh, oh my god, please do that. <laughs> you can do that, Nick Cave, at film... <laughs> At Film Pivotal on Twitter. Oh, that's great. Uh, or you can send you, it you to... You know you wrote like a sequel to Gladiator. Gladiator, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Did, Did you, you listen? That? Yeah. It's good. It's good. It's a good one. It's fun. That was a great episode. 
Um, I love that episode especially because Mark Maron has a lot of conflicted feelings about it. He thinks it's like a terrible, terrible, terrible interview. But people that love Nick Cave, I just love that interview because Nick Cave seems so like confused about what he's doing. Well, that means he doesn't even realize that they're recording until like ten minutes into the episode. Um, if you, yeah, if you want to tell us anything about your Passion of the Christ two ideas, or you know how you feel about Nick Cave, or how wrong or correct we are about, or about how excited you are about Bad Boys for Life. Oh man, it's there's no way that it's as good as Bad Boys two. No, there's no way. I mean, we're, we're reviewing that, right? Yeah, they do not. But he's not going to drive a a Hummer down a mountain full of houses. He's just not going to do it. A shanty town. Imagine City of God, but with a guy just driving a Hummer through all of those <laughs> through all those homes. Um, in Cuba, it, where there's probably not as many shanty towns nah, as they think there are. There's probably less. Um, send it to... <laughs> Michael send Bay it. definitely forgot his countries at that moment. Oh, I don't think Michael Bay knows where he is right now. <laughs> um... <laughs> if you're Michael Bay and you have a question as to where you are in the world, send us a message at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Re, take no responsibility if we answer that question wrong. Michael Bay, you're on your own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll do our best, but, you know. <laughs> but if you die, real no liability. If you end up in a mono situation, it's on you, buddy. It's on you. Um, yeah, or go to pivotalfilm.com and you can see... Uh, if you end up in a good situation... We also take no responsibility. No, we're no. Equal opportunity. We're not saying we want him to be in a mono situation. No. We're just saying that if, if you, you find the next idea for your next great movie, we will claim no ownership of that. If you However, somehow convince Shia LaBeouf ask, to do another one of your an films. Interview. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're 100% going to. And we're, not, we're just going to do it here. No. We'll give you bears. And cookies. That's not going to happen. So. <laughs> um, yeah, on PivotalFilm.com, there's a list of the movies. Uh on our list and links to uh, how to subscribe and links to our Twitter and links to uh, a list of the beers that we drank. And we're going to be posting lots of new um, written content in the, oh, in the coming shit. weeks. Speaking of, which will be fun. How excited are you for, for next, for the top 20? Mm-hmm. Very excited. I mean, me and you right now are four days away. Our listeners are seven days away from the beginning of it. We're four days away from no three days. God, I'm bad at, Doing this time It's thing. fucking Christmas, man. Christmas fucks with your head. Well, no, I always count the damn in. But we're three days away from the list. I know. You excited? Um, yeah, I think it's gonna be. I think it's gonna be emotional because there's not any of the movies. I didn't. Just... It might ruin our friendship. No. You might look at my number one and be like, "What?" Maybe. I mean, maybe. You never know. It's gonna happen. It's about. I'm gonna say my number. That I think. Two weeks from now will be our last episode because you will just have killed me. Maybe. It's possible. My number one, you're going to hate. I'm going to hate it? I'm going to hate the movie or I'm going to hate that's your number one? You're going to hate that as my number one. I think I know what it is. Okay. I also think it's my number one. Okay. Well, if you have any questions, if you have any thoughts, tweet us, email us. But you know what you should do? You should watch a movie with beer. I'll talk to you next week. What do you think my number one is? <laughs>